and welcome to the Raw is Nitro podcast, the show that rips up the buy rates and TV ratings and declares our own winner in some of pro wrestling's biggest head-to-head battles. I'm your host, Lee Carlos Cunningham, joined today for the first time by Tim Root from the 20 Years of Nitro podcast. How's it going, Tim? Uh, it's going excellent. I'm very, very excited to talk about these uh, two very different shows. Yeah, two fantastically uh, mid ninety shows. We're going to look at Clash of the Champions 28 taking on SummerSlam 1994. So most of you will remember the, the big main event of SummerSlam, but there's some hidden gems amongst these two shows as well. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I don't know, like, uh, how, how old are you? 33. And were you watching in 1994? Were you aware of kind of what was going on? Absolutely, yeah. I um, I remember renting this tape of SummerSlam 94 and being rushed to watch it and take it back and having to fast forward through some of The Undertaker vs. Undertaker and being heartbroken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was... Uh, so this was kind of the tail end of... I, I've sort of watched wrestling in periods. This was my childhood period. And I, this was right as I was sort of tapering out. I watched WrestleMania 10, and I loved it. And I don't know exactly what it was, just sort of changing friends or changing school or something. Uh, but I kind of dropped out. And so I was sort of aware that there was an Undertaker versus Undertaker story, but this wasn't really when I was an active fan. So it's been fun to go back and, and watch this now. Yeah, it's not something I've been back and watched a whole bunch since then, so I certainly enjoyed taking this trip down memory lane. It's a little bit before both of our timelines, so a good step back. Yeah, yeah. For, uh, you know, we start on 20 Years of Nitro, we start right when Nitro started, so that's September 95, basically one year from now. And it's fascinating, especially as we talk about Clash, uh, how much has changed even before Nitro airs uh, in in WCW. It's pretty crazy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I started mine a week after that, so the first head-to-head. And, yeah, it's it's incredible watching the progression on both companies. Now, SummerSlam comes to us from the brand-new United Center in Chicago. So the first-ever event held in the new home of the Chicago Bulls and the Blackhawks as well, I believe, is it? That is correct, yes. Mm. Um, I actually went to the United Center when I was over in America, but there was no games on. I just went to see the, <coughs> I just went to see the Michael Jordan statue, being a huge Michael Jordan fan. <laughs> the event drew a sellout crowd of 23,000 and 300,000 pay-per-view buys, which was up significantly on the King of the Ring, uh, which only drew 185,000 a couple of months prior. Clash of the Champions 28 comes to us from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, uh, the five-season center, and that drew a much smaller crowd of 4,200, but a pretty healthy TV rating of 4.5. Yeah, this was uh, TBS's most watched uh, program of the year, I believe, or at least special of the year. Oh, wow. And uh, at, at the time, the Hogan Flair main event uh, was the most watched wrestling match, uh, televised wrestling match in the United States. I think that's since been surpassed, but as of uh, the time... It set that record. Oh, wow. That's incredible. I did not know any of that. So definitely glad you've taken some healthier notes. <laughs> so we, um, you watch both shows simultaneously, as you said, before we, we started recording. I watched The Clash first, so we're probably going to head over and look at The Clash first. That sound okay? Absolutely. Fantastic.
So Clash of the Champions from August 1994 um, begins on the WWE Network with a little disclaimer saying that it's presented in the most complete form possible and actually starts during the Nasty Boys entrance for the opening contest. As far as I could tell, that was about all that we've lost. Um, Did you notice any other weird cuts during the show? No, I didn't notice anything. You know, I watched it, I'm sure, like you did on the network. The only thing, like you said, was the the announcement that it started late with technical difficulties. And kind of as we come in, Shivani's... Uh, thanking whoever just sang the national anthem. So I think that's all we probably missed was the singing of the national anthem. Okay, so nothing too major. Um, probably the little commentary rundown as well, but the commentary team, you can tell pretty early on, is Tony Schiavone and Bobby the Brain Heenan. So not a bad combo. I like their early work together personally. Yeah, I think uh, Schiavone doesn't get uh, enough credit. He's he's not that bad, and his deadpan humor is often pretty funny and plays pretty well with Bobby. Uh, they'll certainly have their problems as we go down the road, but I thought overall they're they're a pretty strong team at this point. Yeah, absolutely, um, and not a bad showing here either. So, as I said, we start with the Nasty Boys entrance, and they're taking on the tag team champions. Pretty wonderful. So this is a tag team I had no idea existed, let alone held the tag team titles, and that's Paul Roma and Mr. Wonderful Paul Laundorf right before his retirement coming in about a year or so's time. Yeah, this match, you know, you've got those guys where... Even if objectively you see why they appeal to other people, you just you, you don't like them. You don't connect to them. There's three of them in this match for me because I can't stand the Nasty Boys, and I cannot stand Paul Roma. Paul Roma, as a when I was a kid, just like a you know six year old watching wrestling, I could not stand Paul Roma, and not in like a heel heat way, in like a, I want to change the channel because I can't stand this guy kind of way. Yeah, he's pretty bland. I was actually interested when you said that to see which of the four that you actually did like. <laughs> Yeah, and it's not like I was a huge uh, Paul Orndorff fan. I just didn't have strong opinions about him one way or the other. So my first note on this match is actually Roma. So pretty much the same (laughs) thoughts. And we go to a commercial break before we've seen any action. Obviously, this is just a bit of a hangover from them starting the recording late. Um, And I've got a note here that the way the commentators are talking, it seems to be a non-title match, this one. Did you pick up on that? Yeah, it, it... There's a couple times where I believe Bobby sort of says something like, if the Nasties win, then they get a title shot. Yeah. Um, But it was not made explicitly clear. No. So, again, we'll probably jump through it because it's the stuff that's happened with the cutoff. But um, the match does get underway, and it's Nobbs and Paul Orndorff starting. We get a double shoulder block from the Nasties and a double clothesline, and then elbows, punches, and a tag out on both sides. So Sags comes in, as does uh, Paul Roma. And Sags unloads with some punches before Roma fires back with a big boot and a top rope crossbody. Um, but he also, then he, he comes off and he's caught with a slam. Some more Nasty Boys double teaming. And then, as was the style at the time with the Nasties, all four go to the outside for a bit of brawling. we got here, Sags is sent to the front row, launched over. And Tony Schiavone tells us during this outside the, the ring action that we're going to see a video from the Honky Tonk Man. <laughs> So that was something that caught my ears pretty early on. Honky's going to be on this show. 
Oh yeah, I'm I'm pretty excited to see the debut of his fantastic new music video. <laughs> you know, one thing they also we also have kind of in the early going too. Um, certainly, you see it as both teams make their way to the ring is uh, Barry Darso, aka the Blacktop Bully, or uh, Smash from Demolition, or was he? One of the no, he was Smash. Yes, yeah. he's sitting kind of front row center, uh, and he's just sort of given given guff to. Everybody heel and babyface as they walk to the ring, and there. I think this is probably the introduction of that character, unless you know otherwise. Do you? No, actually, I'm glad you brought that up because I saw him, and to, uh, he pops up two or three times, and the commentators don't really say who it is. But the way he was dressed, for some reason, I thought it was the Mountie at first because he's got oh yeah the red button up shirt with the cut off sleeves and the sunglasses on, and it just pans to him quickly, and he's yelling, and it goes back, and I'm thinking. Is that the Mountie? Is it? Is it? But no, I'm glad you've um, corrected me there because that comes up on my notes pretty quickly here. Well, I told you, you know, I was telling you before we recorded that I'm from Minnesota, and that's a part of the country that has a disproportionate number of wrestlers that have come from here. Oh yeah, uh, Barry Barry Darso being one of them. So I, uh, we we sort of take a little bit of pride in, in all of wrestlers. So I feel need if, if anyone's from Minnesota, I'm definitely going to let you know as we record here. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and yeah, I've actually, now that you mentioned that, I do recall you um, saying that, I think, on the first episode, because it was from the Mall of America in Minnesota, wasn't it? That's correct, yes. Yes, jogged my memory. Yeah, Bischoff isn't from here, but he spent a lot of time here, so he's familiar with the area, and when he booked the first Nitro, uh, thought of the mall as sort of an interesting, uh, you know, you haven't seen a venue like that previously in televised wrestling. I don't know that it worked well, but it was a, it was a good idea. It, it certainly caught my attention. So we go then back in the action, uh, back in the ring, I should say. Roma comes off with a slam and a top rope elbow before Orndorff comes in and locks in a chin lock. Uh, we get another shot of Blacktop Bully in the crowd. Orndorff and Roma begin to double team on Sags. We get a big drop kick from Roma for a two. Um, Orndorff comes in and Sags reverses him on a pile driver attempt and makes a hot tag to Nobbs. He comes in and goes wild on, on both opponents before all four men come in the ring. And then we get a bit of a breakdown of the action and Orndorff and Roma hit the powerplex of the old power and glory move. Um, after the movie's hit, Sags comes off the top and hits a top rope elbow to pick up the one, two, three for the Nasty Boys. Do you think the Nasty Boys work as baby faces? Because they're baby faces. Pretty much from when they joined WCW until quite a bit of time from now. What, what do you what do you make of that? Not at all. I'm actually on. I've recorded an episode that I haven't put out yet, which will come out either before or after this show, where the Road Warriors are acting quite heelish in a bit of a three team brawl with the Nasties and the LOD. Oh, sorry, with it with the Nasties and the Steiners, and I just don't get the dynamic there either. The Nasties are they don't have any babyface moves. Yeah, I. They're not, uh, you know, they're not very good at selling. They're not very good at hot tags. Uh, I, I just don't quite get what they're doing positioned as baby faces. There, you know, in fairness though, there are a lot of people in the crowd who are pretty happy to see him win here. So I guess it's just something that's lost on me. Um, but I, I, it's always been confusing me when they've been portraying baby faces. Yeah, they're not very sympathetic characters. <laughs> right. I mean, at least they they eliminate rubbing a guy's face in their armpit when they're baby faces. <laughs> That's, they at least made that concession. Yeah, uh, small steps. <laughs> From after this matchup, we go to Hulk Hogan shilling uh, a pre-recorded um, advert. Hulk Hogan shilling the Hulkster hotline. And in a classic um, going against the company for the sake of getting laughs moment, Bobby Heenan tells everybody at home not to call it because he'll probably swear at you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like, I like the, um, the options I wrote down. I, just, I don't think these are all of them, but you've got to uh, beat the Hulk. Hulk trivia, 
and special Hulk messages. <laughs> None of which make me want to part with my one ninety nine a minute. <laughs> oh, man. And then from there, speaking of the Hulkster, we go to Gene Oakland, who is with Hulk Hogan, except before he can cut his usual Hogan promo, he is attacked in a very Mr. Burns from the Simpsons bowling team moment <laughs> from behind. A master assailant hits him on the knee with a pipe. Don't worry about nothing, Homer. I have a feeling that Mr. Burns is going to have a little accident that might keep him from bowling with us tonight. <laughs> Smithers, I'm afraid I won't be able to play tonight. My old gimpy knee is gone to again. Take that! Ooh. Smithers, that precision assault department back into place. Thank you, masked stranger. Yeah, they were definitely going for a, uh, I don't know, if you're familiar with the story of Nancy Kerrigan. No. Okay, so she was a United States uh, Olympic figure. Oh, yes, yes, I am. Let's carry on, but yeah. And around this time, she was preparing for the Olympics, and uh, a man ran up and hit her in the knee with, like, a police baton. And uh, no one could figure it. You know, it, it kind of very quickly came out that it was a, another Olympic figure skater. Her and her husband had hired this other gentleman uh, to come and hit her in the knee. So, you know, getting hit in the knee and uh, before a big athletic contest was all the rage in America. So. <laughs> if the Simpsons did it, it definitely can make it to wrestling. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, it didn't pop his knee back into place like for old Monty Burns. <laughs> yeah. And Gene, of course, um, he's brilliant here. He says, look at that knee. Jesus! <laughs> yeah. yeah, he keeps... Uh, he, he's just amazing. He's so... He, he seems... Um, like morally disgusted whereas the immediate reaction should be is he okay what's the medical situation but he jumps right to like outraged and i think that's just a great reaction to have yeah it's brilliant uh, gene really sells it here um hulk stretch it up and gene is a uh, stretch it off i should say and gene's constantly interrupting the help just yet to yell at them and berate them as though they can do anything other than help him go and get fixed now, what's your uh, your spoiler policy? Do we talk about who that eventually is, or are we, we going to shy away from that for now? No, feel free. They're going to find out. I mean, if they, if they don't know by now, then they're obviously not going to watch it. Well, because it's kind of interesting. It uh, it turns out we, we eventually will be shown that it was uh, Brutus the Barber Beefcake, or Brutai, as he's known here, uh, who will then become the Butcher and feud with Hulk. Um, in Under the Mask is actually Arn Anderson. It's not actually Brutus that's Under the Mask. Uh, but the original plan, it was supposed to be Mr. Perfect. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, uh, that's something that Meltzer wrote in The Observer, and I was, you know, I wasn't sure if that was just sort of him throwing stuff at the wall, but somewhere on the show, when talking about the hit to the knee, Bobby Heenan does say, did you see how he hit him? He hit him in the knee perfectly. And he, like, really emphasizes it, like he's foreshadowing something. Ah, that's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah, so I don't know. Uh, Perfect, you know, he re-signed with the WWF uh, around this time, so they must have been planning to bring him in WCW, and, and Vince just managed to hang on to him. WCW had this awful habit in the um, late 80s, early 90s of starting mass storylines without having a, either someone picked or someone under contract, didn't they? Black Scorpion uh, come to mind? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> After that um, 
that incident, we go to our next matchup, which is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat challenging for the United States title from stunning Steve Austin in a no disqualification match. Now, when I saw this one pop up, I was super pumped. This is one of their matches. You know, this is their matches in wrestling folklore that are just considered to be classics. And every now and again, there's one that you just have never watched for whatever reason. This is one of them for me. I'd never watched this match. Yeah, I'd watched some of this feud earlier um, when the network first debuted. I kind of went through this period of WCW, but I was only really watching the pay-per-views. I don't think the clashes were even added at that point. So I had sort of seen the match that happened before this and the unfortunate uh, match that happens on the pay-per-view after this. Uh, but it was great to actually sit down and, and watch this match because I think it was the best that I personally saw. Yeah, and um, really, really good stuff, which we'll go through now. Um Austin comes out and he's got Dragon Slayer printed on the back of his tights in a nice little touch as well. We get the match started with a side headlock from Austin, followed by some chain wrestling and some slaps, which gets the crowd really hot there behind the dragon here. And Austin's got awesome heel heat in the early going. Um, more chain wrestling. And then the commentators go silent while a stage uh, a stagehand sorry, gives him an update on the Hulk Hogan situation, which makes for a little bit of weird TV, but does add some realism to the situation anyway. Yeah, you can really barely hear the guy speak, and they let him talk for a long time. Yeah, it's definitely not I mean, a quick it was, update. It was a little awkward. <laughs> mm. We then get a bit of a chop fest, fo- followed by Dragon hitting a pair of drop kicks and a power slam for a two count before going to work on Austin's arm. He hits a roll up for a two count, and the two exchange some pinning uh, combinations and really quick, good action here before Dragon goes back to the arm drag and working on the arm. And Austin then tosses him out of the ring, and they go outside for some brawling along the outside. I like they start to argue here, uh, Shivani and Heenan. Um, Steamboat has decided to waive the disqualification advantage for a champion. So if Steamboat is disqualified, Austin will win the title, even though that's not normally the rule. And uh, Heenan becomes very confused by this, and he seems to think that if Steamboat gets disqualified, or that it's so confusing, I I can't even remember exactly what it is, but Heenan seems to think that Steamboat can intentionally get disqualified and win Austin's title. That's what it is. Yeah, which does not Um, make any sense at all. Right, right. And and him and Shivani go around for like, a minute and a half trying to sort out what exactly they're talking about. Yeah, which uh, means we're all the more confused watching at home. <laughs> which is why I can barely remember what it actually was. <laughs> I, I get a lot of moments like that. My memory's terrible. And any anything that confuses the issue, I try and steer away from unless it becomes a storyline later. <laughs> they exchange sleeper attempts and then Austin counters with a jawbreaker, which looked awfully like a move he would go on to make famous a few years later on. Absolutely. It was it was not quite the stunner, but it's really getting close to that. Definitely. We hear Sting is going to be flying into uh, the arena to take Hulk Hogan's place in the main event if needed. So good guy there, the Stinger. Yeah, according to Shivani, air traffic control called the show <laughs> to tell them that Sting chartered a private plane. Uh, so I looked it up. This would have been about a three-hour show if you would put the commercials back in. Um and this is about an hour and 10 minute flight. So if Sting is staying in Chicago close to the airport, he maybe could get there and board a private flight and get here to the five season center in Cedar Rapids. That, that's possible. <laughs> Unlikely, but possible. I looked into it. I, I just want to be um, a fly on the wall for the phone call. Hi, Clash of the Champions. This is air traffic control. <laughs> how, how does that work? <laughs> yeah. Give me the number for Clash of the Champions. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That'd be brilliant. <laughs> uh, 
Um, Austin runs his shoulder into the post before Steamboat takes this as a cue to go back on the arm. Comes off the top rope with his patented chop for a two count. Austin comes back with a knee drop for a two count and they exchange some more slaps before Austin breaks up the sequence with an eye poke and locks in a chin lock. Steamboat comes back with chops. Austin gets his knees up on a splash and we get the classic Austin second rope elbow. So he's really starting to hone in on the arsenal we'd come to know and love later on. That gets him a two count. He then hits a two uh, suplex for another two count before Steamboat crutches him on the top rope. Shivani calls him the steamer at one point, which I found pretty disturbing. That's a very uh, gorilla monsoon thing to call him there. He was, he was, he was, <laughs> he was big on the steamer and the beefer. Yeah, the beefer. God, I forgot about that. <laughs> the beefer. Um, up top, Austin blocks a superplex attempt from Steamboat and actually throws him off the top with a gourd buster, which looked really cool. He comes off the top, though, but eats a basically an X-factor from Steamboat during his dive off the top, uh, missing a top rope crossbody. Austin gets back in control and paintbrushes and slaps Steamboat, which just fires him up and pisses him off a little bit. He comes back with some mounted punches, a pair of double chops for a two count, a spine buster for a two count, and then they go into some more uh, exchanging of pin sequences, all getting two counts. Austin hits a nice clothesline and then tosses Steamboat, but he skins the cat, comes back in also, and no DQ, so we're told that on commentary that wouldn't have resulted in the match ending. And he manages to lock on a small package for the 1-2-3 in what I found to be a really entertaining match. What did you think? Yeah, I thought overall this match was fantastic. Uh, Steamboat is just such an incredible worker, and I don't think a lot of people realize, if you've only watched Steve Austin in the WWF, you don't know how good he was before his knees went to hell. Um, so there, this is just a great match. I thought at the end they were both pretty exhausted. Well, it was a combination of they were both pretty tired um, and the fact that Steamboat injured his back during this match, and actually it's a career-ending injury. He has about four house show matches, but he's done as an in-ring performer after this. So his back is hurting so much, so I, I hesitate to criticize it. Um, but I think because of those factors at the end, those pin reversals that you talked about, they... They go, it's like they're moving through molasses at that point. The pin reversals are so slow. Um, so I thought it sort of lost some momentum at the end, but given that the performers are very tired and Steamboat was just clearly in agony, as soon as he wins, he holds up the belt and you can just see him yell, fuck, in pain. Um, so given those factors, uh, you know, I certainly think you can excuse a little bit of slowness. Yeah, definitely. Um just uh, something like Austin jumping off the top rope and eating an X-Factor is something that if you've only watched him in the WWF, you'd be shaking your head saying, no, that, that didn't happen. <laughs> um, do you know what move it was where he injured himself? I don't. I only noticed, uh, you know, I had read that, so I was kind of looking, and I never saw anything that looked like it would be something that would injure him, but you clearly can see when he has to get up off the ground towards the end of the match, he's really holding his back and not necessarily in a way that seems like selling it seems like a guy who is in tremendous pain fair enough well even this makes the match i guess for me even more fantastic because obviously his his career does end here for well for the longest time until the mid 2000s when he comes back for that little mini feud with jericho um but i and he can still go at that point amazing yeah he's fantastic but yeah this was just awesome so really good match from there, we go to a commercial break, and when we come back, we have Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan with Mean Gene reviewing the Hulk Hogan situation, and then we've got Eric Bischoff commentating, 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 comment, comment. <laughs> we've got Eric Bischoff talking about it at the hospital. <laughs> Reporting in from the hospital. <laughs> yeah, I cut all that, I think. 
Um, and we've got Hogan, Beefcake, and Jimmy Hart heading into the hospital, uh, going in to get him checked over before we go to our next commercial break. Coming out of that commercial break, though, it is time for the newest track from The Honky Tonk Man. I drive a pink Cadillac, I got my hair slicked back, I got all kind of girls hanging on my back. You're just a honky dog, baby. Basically, a remix of Hunker, Hunker, Hunker Love <laughs> with just enough change to not get sued. It's such a sound alike. It's amazing. And the video was shot for like less than $20 because the only things are uh, Honky Tonk Man drives up to some guy's house and asks him how to get to like the WCW. <laughs> and this, this yokel in a WCW hat tells him exactly how to get there. And then he's he drives in the car a bit. We occasionally see the yokel dancing. We see some girls dancing in what appears to be a parking lot. <laughs> and then the rest is blue screen. They uh, This was shot, if it took longer than three hours and cost more than $50, I would be amazed. It's like, It looks like the real life, uh, the guy that Honky Tonk asked for directions, he looks like a real life character from King of the Hill. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. And he's just yeah, dancing on his way back to the front door because he's seen Honky Tonk Man. It's, it's tremendously bad. <laughs> Oh, it's incredible. Yeah, so um, definitely go back and, and watch the video in its entirety because it's worth it for a laugh. <laughs> we then get uh, Mean Gene with Nick Bockwinkle, who's acting as a commissioner of WCW at this point in time, and he tells us that as unfortunate and upsetting as it is, if Hulk Hogan does not show up, he will have to forfeit the title to Rick. Which doesn't make a ton of sense to me, but, I mean, I guess it's setting up a, a storyline for the show, but it's not like if he's injured and can't compete tonight, I, I don't see why you'd suddenly have him have to give up the title, but that's just me. You'd think he'd have a, a grace period of 45 days or whatever kind of classic. Yeah, you know, it was always 30-day title defenses, so unless it's been 29 days since his last one, this seems a little bit harsh. Yeah, well, he won it at... This would be his first title defense, right? Because he won it at Bash at the Beach. Awesome. And that was, what, June or July, right? Oh, fair enough. I suppose he's had enough time. Stop being lazy and get in the ring, Hulk. 
<laughs> yeah, now I'm on. Bo- I talked myself into it. I'm on Bakufu's side. <laughs> yeah, get, don't even give him till the end of the show. Take it now. <laughs> From there, we get a, a Dusty and Dustin Rhodes promo, which I found fascinating. It's um basically Dusty going through how he was never there for Dustin and how he wasn't a good dad and how he neglected him while he was on the road, and he um wants to be his tag partner and help him through his feud with Bunkhouse Buck and Terry Funk. The reason I guess why I found this so fascinating is because a lot of this, you know, material seems to play out later on for the Gold Dust character in WWF. Yeah, I think um, you know, the reason it keeps coming up is because it's absolutely true. I, he really wasn't there uh, for Dustin in the way that he was for Cody, you know, Cody's I think and Dusty were sort of best friends where Dustin was sort of left at home while Dusty was off drinking and partying across the United States. Um, so I, I think that resentment that they talk about is real. I think that's why there were a lot of segments, you know, later where Dustin was kind of willing to go out and mock Dusty until a lot later when they sort of reconciled. Um, but you're right. The, the package is really well done. And the promo from Dusty, I think is, is just incredible. There's real, real emotion in talking about how he's been neglecting his son, but he wants to team up with him now. And even though he's like an old broken down, you know, has been, uh, he, he thinks that he can help his son. And it's just, I, I found that pretty powerful stuff. I actually thought it was a great promo. I do too. Um, I, I thought this was awesome. It does. There's a question I've always wondered, and I'll get your opinion on this here. Do you think if Dustin Rhodes had stayed in WCW, he would have been a world champion at some point? Or did going to the WF make him go further than he would have? I think in the end, going to WWF was good for him. I don't think he had enough uh, charisma as Dustin who would always be compared to his father, who was just such a fountain of endless charisma. Um, I, and, and given who was in WCW at the time with, with Hulk and Flair and Sting, I don't see how he ever could have risen up to the upper echelon. Okay. I think he needed a completely different character that was totally separate from anything uh, he had done before. And I think Goldust, for all of its flaws, especially in the 90s, um, I think it really provided that for him. It's certainly given him longevity, if nothing else. But we go to our next matchup, which, as we talked about, is the Rhodes father and son. So I believe first time tagging on a televised event since the 1991 Royal Rumble, but I stand to be corrected on that. No, I think that's correct. I think it's uh, it's Dusty's first match since he left the WWF. Okay, so that would make sense then. Um, and I've got fun memories of that Royal Rumble. Um just a quick sidebar that was one pay-per-view i think that was the first ever pay-per-view i got to watch live so i was um i want to say i was six years old at the time and living in the uk it would have been on pretty late at night but i managed to stay up and watch it so i was pretty happy with that i believe the first uh, pay-per-view i watched live was wrestlemania 9 and that's why even though it's objectively terrible i always have a soft spot in my heart for it (laughs) yeah two completely different shows there Um, Bunkhouse Buck and Terry Funk come out with quite the entourage. They've got Colonel Robert Parker as the manager and their bodyguard in a suit and sunglasses, Meng. Now, this just tickled me pink, seeing Meng in a suit and sunglasses. He does look pretty badass. Hell yeah, I wouldn't mess with him normally, but this made him... It took it up a gear. And I've got an unimportant correction. I did... uh, WrestleMania 6 would be the first one I watched live. I see... We just, for some reason, there was a break between six and nine where I couldn't convince my parents to order another one. Oh, we were lucky. In the UK, they were actually free to air, so I didn't have to worry about that. Oh, I would kill for that. (laughs) Uh, WrestleMania 6 is a much better show, too, by the way, so I'd stick with that. (laughs) Absolutely. 
because of uh, Earthquake and Hercules Hernandez. Is that oh, that's name? amazing. <laughs> <laughs> the Bolsheviks and Heart Foundation have a classic on that one. <laughs> uh, we start the match with all four men brawling before Dustin and Buck get in the ring. Dustin uh, lays into him with a big boot. Um, Dustin's starting to bulk up a little bit here, so he's not the sort of really lanky character he was in, in the early 90s, and he's starting to... Add a little bit of muscle, but also he's got his dad's physique coming on a little bit here as well, which as it goes into gold dust, you can tell that he does definitely put a bit of weight on before then coming back into shape later on. Yeah, he goes from skinny fat to just sort of fat fat. Yeah, especially during like 1998 when he's got all the weird outfits on. It's um, He's got some interesting looks coming up. We get Buck misses a shot on Dustin with Terry Funk holding him and actually nails Funk. This brings Funk into the ring. Dustin hits him with an atomic drop, and this brings Dusty into the ring. He unloads on the heels with bionic elbows um, and then a noggin knocker before Dustin comes back in and hits a power slam for a two count. But Buck gets in the ring and nails him with a cowboy boot. Funk comes in and unloads with some headbutts. The referee misses a tag, allowing Buck to get in the ring, but he accidentally again nails Terry Funk with the cowboy boot. Uh, pretty um, by mistake there, obviously. Dusty comes back in the ring. Um, Arn Anderson comes out and nails Dustin on the floor, and Bobby Heenan comes out with a classic line, how come nobody likes the Rhodes family? Yeah. <laughs> I also love Arn uh, in his khakis and a t-shirt, and the t-shirt is firmly tucked into those khakis. <laughs> uh, that is just such a <laughs> He always is dressed like your dad, you know? <laughs> yeah. I think way back when on one of these episodes, I referred to him as, um, what was it? The um, the toughest dad in the school or something like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> like, you know he's a dork, but certainly you're not going to say <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, not at all. Dustin gets back in the ring and hits clotheslines to both of them and a bulldog. Um, Arn Anderson stops him hitting a getting the cover, though, and DDTs Dustin. Dusty gets in and nails Arn, which brings Meng into the ring. Dusty then breaks a wooden chair over the head of Meng, who no-sells it. And with the chair still wrapped around his head, puts Dusty in the tongue and death grip. That was just awesome. It's such a happy accident that that chair hung on his head like that, because he looked so badass. And it was both like funny and awesome at the same time. It was just great. And then a bunch of uh, WCW jobbers come out to try and make the save, but we have no joy. And it kind of just ends here. I don't actually know what the result was. I'm assuming it was a DQ win for the faces, but it was a bit of a melee at the end. Yeah, that's a good question. I I actually don't know um, what the official result is. It's setting up a War Games match between the Rhodes um, and the Stud Stable. And I forget... I think the Nasties are the Rhodes' partners in that match, if I remember right. And that should be interesting. Yeah, enjoy covering that one. Then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we might skip back to 96. <laughs> Bischoff is then with Henry Holmes, who we're told is the lawyer for Hulk Hogan, and he informs us that Hulk, Hulk is in getting x-rays. He says that I've spoken to Mr. Bischoff. I, I mean, the powers that be at WCW, sort of dropping the ball there. <laughs> Bischoff's looking at him like, that's me, dickhead. That I knew earlier. Obviously, they wouldn't let had the opportunity to talk to a spokesperson. I do know that Jimmy Hart, uh, Henry Holmes, the attorney, I see them over by the door. We'll try to get together with them and find out exactly what is going on. All I can say is by the looks on everyone's faces, this it doesn't look good for Hulk Hogan. Henry Holmes, you were in there, they let you in. As Holmes, 
you were in there, they let you in as his attorney. T tell me what the situation right, right is. Now, uh, right now, Hulk is an x-ray. The doctor is extremely concerned because it is a knee injury, about the severity of the knee injury. He's in a great deal of pain, which makes it difficult to examine him. I have advised him, in light of the injury, the knee injury, which is a very, very serious type of injury, that he should decline to wrestle tonight and he should concede his belt to Ric Flair. I've talked with Mr. Bischoff and the other powers that be at the WCW, and in exchange for that, they have guaranteed Hulk the first shot, the first title shot with Ric Flair. It's out of Ric Flair's hands. He's guaranteed the first title shot. However, Hulk seems to be determined on wrestling tonight. He's not listening to me. Jimmy has tried. Brutai has tried. I called uh, his agent, Peter Young, from Los Angeles, who's also talked to Hulk, and Hulk seems to be determined. So, uh, so is he or isn't he? What is his status? He seems to be determined. He wants to wrestle. We don't want him to wrestle. Jimmy, I'm just going to tell you, Hulk's hard-headed. He's going to do what Hulk Hogan wants to do, right, Brutai? That's right. Hulkster says what Hulkster wants to do, Hulkster's going to do, and there's no power on this earth. There's nothing that could change his mind at this point. As Henry said, everybody's tried to talk to him. We've tried to talk sense to him. We've tried to talk logic to him. But he's not having any part right. of it. All right, there's some activity back in the back again. We're, we're, that's all we know from here. Back to you. <laughs> well, they yeah, they do um, way back at the beginning when Hulk gets hit in the knee. Uh, they do, Shivani references that Bischoff is the executive vice president back then. Um, you know, he says, like, Executive Vice President Eric Bischoff's looking on. And I thought that was really interesting because by the time that you get to the Nitro era, they sort of play at that idea a lot. They sort of hope that you as a smart fan know that, but they never come out and just say it. So it was interesting to see that here a couple of years before they were pretty open. With yeah, he kind of gets the Vince treatment until he gets involved in the NWO storyline. So, yeah, very yes. interesting. Um, we're told that Hulk wants to wrestle, and then Jimmy Hart and Brudai are sort of there in the background as well, um, just doing their usual shtick. And we then go to Gene with Ric Flair and Sherry. Um, big. I, I do want to say, uh, sorry no. to interrupt, but that is Hogan's real lawyer. And the fact that he got his lawyer a payday to show up on Clash of the Champions and uncharismatically read a few lines is so Hulk Hogan. <laughs> that I think it, it bears pointing out. I, I was fairly certain he was, just because he, he obviously, like, I got the impression the slip of saying Mr. Bischoff is because that's who he normally deals with. <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, and it's, even in the Nitro era, especially after he turns heel and they want to sort of make him seem like a dick, they bring up his lawyer all the time and they always mention his name, Henry Holmes, and I don't know if, like, he hangs out with them all the time. I don't know why they feel like this one lawyer has to get shout-outs constantly on Nitro. But if you once you notice it, you, you just hear it all the time. I bet it does big business for him. I'm sure. We Flair says that he wants Hulk Hogan to come out and hand him the title belt. Um, and then Sherry says that she wants to dance on Hulk Hogan's grave. I love heel Sherry. She's fantastic. Oh, she wants to dance in his grave and she's dressed for a funeral she's in all black she's got a black veil it's really incredible stuff i think sherry's great on this show hell yeah we then go to a commercial and when we come back it is time for our next contest which was one that really intrigued me um a little bit of a just a strange pairing it's steve regal taking on antonio anoki yeah it kind of comes out of nowhere and, and you get that impression from the show they never really give you any setup they all they say is that Regal brought this match on himself, and they don't really say how that was. And without watching Saturday Night, I guess I'm not going to know. But. I believe he interrupted a like award presentation of Antonio Inoki. You know, one of them deals where they bring them out to present them. Oh, right. And and um, 
That might have even been on pay-per-view. I, th- I, I th- want to say it was on the previous pay-per-view, um, but I'm not 100% sure on that. Yeah, Anoki is uh, wrapping up his career. He's having He does like a final countdown where he has a few matches, a few like MMA exhibitions, uh, and it goes on all the way till 98, but this is one of his like seventh or eighth last matches, and he personally requested to work with Regal. He's already in Japanese Parliament as well at this point in time as well, so very interesting. Only for about another year, because uh, scandals kind of take him out in 95. He, he almost gets impeached. Uh, but managed to avoid it, and then he loses re-election. Fair enough. Um, I actually was hugely interested in the fact that I had Antonio Inoki pop up on one of my 80s shows um, a few weeks back that I was reviewing with Richie, and it was interesting that I'm now going to get him again 10 years later, so we'll see whether or not he, he stands up the test of time here. Um, Regal, was he good in, in the other match you watched? Was it was good? brief, so yeah, he was pretty good. I think okay. I think he actually um, he won one match and then won a battle royal, so he was pretty impressive. And he was over; it was in the garden as well. Oh, okay. Regal kicks in before he gets in the ring, and then they exchange some slaps before Regal locks on a single leg Boston Crab. They exchange a lot of map-based sort of submission attempts here in a very real-looking contest, which is something Regal prides himself on. Yeah, you can tell that this is a match that the crowd is not used to seeing. It's a very different type of match. A lot of hard strikes and just grappling. Uh, part of that is because, at least according to Regal's book, Regal says that he immediately, at the beginning of the match, need Inoki in the ribs. And there is a part of the match right at the beginning where they cut away, but he he does hit him before the bell. Um, and he says that he knocked the wind out of Inoki, so Inoki couldn't do much for the rest of the match. Now, I don't know if he's just kind of trying to cover for Inoki and just be sort of a nice guy, or maybe he's misremembering, because I didn't get that impression so much. Um, but anyway, if it seems like Anoki's being slow, that's one possible explanation. Fair here. enough. Regal then hits a headbutt and some kicks and sends him onto the commentary table before bringing him back in and unloading with some knees, a European uppercut and a leg lock before they uh, do some dueling. I've got dueling arm throws here. Um, not sure. I've, I've lost that there. He fakes that he's going to walk backstage um, and we're told that Hulk Hogan is... Oh, sorry, no. We've got Hulk Hogan walking backstage, and we're told that he's walked all the way from the hospital. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. They speci- they specify that several times, that he walked... Not only is he going to wrestle on a bad knee, but he walked back from the hospital on a bad knee. That just seems entirely unnecessary. <laughs> I'm sure... You could call a cab. You could Brutus could grab a car. A fan would probably say, "Hey, that's Hulk Hogan. He looks hurt. Maybe I'll give him a ride." I'm know? assuming the ambulance didn't allow Jimmy Hart, Brutus, and Henry Holmes all in the ambulance. One of them had to have driven there. <laughs> I hope one of them had to ride shotgun with the EMTs just up in the front, kind of awkwardly, like, "Oh, so how long have you been doing this? You know, <laughs> what time do you get off?" Anoki <laughs> uh, comes back with a takedown and a choke uh, before we get Nick Bockwinkle walking out, which kind of distracts everybody because he's sort of walking down the ramp and there's not in WCW that way you could sort of walk beside the ramp and stay off, off camera. So he's basically coming down and interrupting the action. Joins the commentary team just briefly and says that Hulk Hogan wants to wrestle. WCW, though, cannot be held responsible for anything that happens if he does. Of course, they're sanctioning this championship fight. Uh, so, yes, they can be held responsible. I Who else would be held responsible? I thought that was such a strange... 
Like, you don't just get to not be responsible because you say you're not responsible. That's not how it this works. This is essentially you drop something on your foot at work, break your foot, go to hospital, are told while you're in the hospital that if you don't come back to work, you won't get paid this week. And when you agree to come back to work, are told that if you injure yourself further, it's not our fault. Yes, that is exactly <laughs> Workplace correct. Workplace health and safety would have a field day with this. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Back in the ring, Inoki hits a backdrop and a takedown. And then a cool-looking rolling sort of butterfly suplex for a two-count, which I thought was was awesome. Um, from Regal, that is, not Inoki. Um, Inoki then hits a choke slash sleeper and gets um, one arm drop from the referee on Regal. And apparently that's enough for the win to a pretty sizable pop from the WCW crowd. I was expecting the three-arm drop, but it was a cool enough finish anyway. I like uh, Tony says that uh, Anoki won with the choke sleeper, one of his many moves. <laughs> he didn't have that many in this match, though. No, he he did not. I I like this match. I like this uh, sort of proto hard hitting Japanese style where they're really giving it to each other. And Regal says that's the only direction he got from Anoki ahead of time was that Anoki wanted him to lay it in and really beat him up. And he said uh, Regal says that a lot of people don't like the match, but that it was a few months after this that New Japan and WCW kind of formalized a working relationship, and he believes that this match was a large part of why they were able to do that. So he, Regal's actually very proud of this match. I'd be pretty proud of this. I mean, for the fact that we sort of said that early on the crowd weren't sure what to make of it, by the end they were pretty happy with this. I agree, yeah. The crowd... For one thing, they hate Regal. They're really giving the business to Sir William, his, like, manservant. Um, so they really, really hate Regal. They do pop decently for Noki when he comes out, and I think they're really happy to see Regal lose at the end. Absolutely. And we get some more Hulk Hogan chilling of his hotline before Bruce Buffer. Um, is it Bruce Buffer or Michael Buffer that's in WCW? This one is Michael Buffer. I always get the two confused. Michael Buffer is doing the introductions for the main event, Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan. Um, Ric Flair gets on the mic, though, before this can take place and calls out Hulk Hogan, who does eventually come out with Jimmy Hart and the Beefer. Um, I'm not really sure why it took him so long to get out, considering he was healthy enough to walk from the hospital. Backstage to the curtain is not that much further. I guess it's just really selling how slow he is on that knee is I all I can think of. Um, I also, what was that I was going to say? Oh, with the way that Flair comes out, uh, I think it's very clear, and he's not normally one to do this, but I think it's very clear if you read his facial expressions that he is not going over tonight. Like he, there's none of that sort of nature boy arrogance and exuberance. He comes out. Just looking like, all right, let's just get down to the ring and do Give this. Give Hulk what he wants one more time. Yeah. Um, Hogan then runs after Ric Flair to start the match, completely abandoning the storyline of the entire night. That's true. I, I do think, though, and I'll just say this now, uh, I think Hogan's selling of the knee is pretty good throughout this match. Yeah, except for this early part. <laughs> yes, yes, with exception to the point you just mentioned. But overall, I was I was pretty surprised. I did not think that I would go into this and praise Hogan's, uh, you know, selling of a body part. But but I actually thought he did overall a very good I, I just watched a episode of Nitro this week where... I, you've probably seen this by now, would have done, where he takes woman's heel to the eye and pops up and hulks up immediately afterwards. It's just, oh, it's comical. Yep. 
Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, um, hit some eye gouges to start the match before ripping his shirt and no-selling Flair's punches. And then we get a... Oh, he stuffs his shirt into Ric Flair's mouth before going to the outside for some yep. brawling. About 40% of Hogan's offense in this match, and I know this is par for the course for Hogan, but about 40% of his offense is cheating in full view of the referee. Yeah, he sort of, um, by this time in WCW, he didn't wrestle like a baby face. No, he, he rips it. He chokes a man with his shirt. He stuffs a shirt in his mouth. Uh, he's going to... Uh, try to hit him with a chair in front of the ref. He bites him in front of the ref. It's every other move is something he should not, as a babyface, be doing. And I've never quite understood why Hogan does this heel babyface who wrestles like a heel. I, uh, the crowd seems to enjoy it. I mean, oh, he he also uh, clotheslines him with a towel, which I would not think is legal. No, it doesn't seem that way. <laughs> Back in the ring, Flair begs off before hitting a snapmare. And going up top, and as always, having much, much joy from the top row. <laughs> Basically being caught and press slammed once again. Yeah, does not turn out well for the nature. Not player. at all. Hulk clotheslines in. They go back outside for some more brawling before coming back in, and Flair hits a lovely delayed vertical suplex, which Hulk Hogan immediately shits on by popping straight up and no-selling. Yep. He hulks up, hits the big boot, but the big boot and the weight on the leg forces him to collapse and sell the knee. He does get back up and hit the leg drop, but he um, he's too too injured to pin him. So some more good selling there from the Hulkster. I think we... Have we gone by the old lady who hits Hulk with her cane? Um, did you notice oh, that I, at all? I, it was I did notice it. because it's, it, um, I, Whenever I see these things, I always put stunt granny and just move on. Yeah, I mean, I would have assumed she was a plant, except for she's attacking the baby face. She's, I guess she's a Flair fan. Yes, so. She hits Hogan up. She gets him right in the head with the cane a few times, and he turns and he's pissed, and he grabs her cane, and then I think he sees that it is a little old lady, and there's no, there's nothing good for Hogan in getting into an argument with a little, especially as a baby face. So he just kind of lets it go and pretends it didn't happen. I almost wonder if they let her keep sitting there, even though she she assaulted one of the performers. Yeah, I'd probably be turfing her at that point. <laughs> Flair locks in a figure four, but Hogan no-sells it and reverses. So it does, I have to say, it does bug me the way Hogan just shits all over Flair and Arn Anderson in this time period at WCW. Absolutely, of course. It's, it's just, it's constant. It doesn't help. It doesn't help Hogan look great, except for the first time. The first time you come in, Flair's the greatest, and you treat him like a chump. Okay, you're great. Every subsequent time, you're going to get diminishing returns, because now we know how much better you are than Flair. So what point is there to just keep doing this over and over again? Absolutely. Sherry then uses her shoe on the knee of Hulk Hogan, and this is enough to put him down on the outside for a countout, which the crowd boos pretty heavily. And maybe I'm projecting onto the crowd, but I feel like they're booing how lame the finish is, not necessarily that Flair won. I agree completely. I think it's a count-out title match main event. I think that just pisses everybody off. We then get a little bit of a, a weird sequence here. Flair's given the belt, or kind of given it, half takes it. And then Buffer announces a title change, which Tony Schiavone on commentary argues pretty heavily. The referee has to come over and correct Buffer, who then still gets the call wrong and says the title can't change hands on a disqualification. Yeah, it's... 
Buffer is paid a lot of money for doing very little work, and he can't even do it correctly. He just, he's handsome, he has a nice suit, and he's got a good voice. And that's apparently enough to get, like, 300 grand a year for doing just fuck all. (laughs) Heenan, of course, on commentary is amazing. Here he goes, wrong, count out, I guess I'll do everyone's job. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Hogan comes back in, and then the masked man comes back down, and they double-team on Hulk Hogan, lock in a figure four, and Sherry comes back in. But the stinger comes out to make the save, chases off the heels, and then Hulk just basically screams for them to get his belt, showing Sting zero uh, gratitude for making the save, and just acts like a bell-end to end the show. Up until the NWO forms, Sting, in the Hulk Hogan period of WCW, Sting probably looks worse than anybody. His gimmick basically becomes being Hulk Hogan's biggest fan. Yeah. And Hogan doesn't seem to give a shit. He he rides him down in some promos later on. It just, I, I, Sting is clearly not a politician. He's not someone who's going to be backstage arguing on his own behalf, because if he were, like, half of this stuff would never have gone down the way it does. He's probably too busy trying to get Lex Luger to pay her eyes and ignoring his own career. (laughs) 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 Because, yeah, he does does himself no favours, and Hulk really shits all over him. Um, Probably he cops it the next worst after Flair and and Andu. Maybe Austin is another one you could make an argument for, but that's more backstage. Yeah, absolutely. So that ends the clash. Overall thoughts on the show? Did you enjoy it? Was it uh, an easy watch? I will say that it moved pretty quickly, even though there was nothing other than the um, Austin Steamboat and the Regal Inoki match that I really liked. But I do think it, I mean, for one thing, it is a lot uh, shorter of a show. It's an, it's an hour, 48 minutes. Um, but I thought it was pretty watchable. I didn't have any major. There was nothing that I thought was just outright terrible, even though there were many things I didn't like particularly um, enthusiastically. I, It's clear to see what happened with this main event because you've got the title win from Hogan before this, uh, and then they're in this rubber match, and then, or excuse me, then they're in this um, the second match, the return match. Flair is clearly supposed to win. They've done nothing on the show but set up excuses for Hulk to lose with the knee and with Sherry's involvement. Uh, clearly Hulk came in at the end and said that he just wasn't going to do it. And that is exactly what Ric Flair says in his book. He says that Hogan had agreed to lose and then they were going to have the uh, career on the line, you know, the retirement match coming up at Halloween Havoc where both of them put their career on the line. Uh, And that was supposed to be that Hulk would get the belt back and that was going to be his big victory, proving he's better than Flair. Well, if he's beaten Flair for the title and then he's had this lame countout finish here on Clash... There's absolutely no heat going into that Halloween Havoc match. It's just a terrible decision. Uh, it doesn't help Hulk either. That's the thing that with all of Hulk's bullshit like this, it doesn't really help him in the end. And it's part of the reason he's forced, uh, really against his against his better judgment, although it ends up working out, why he's forced to turn heel in 96. Yeah, because he's basically destroyed all his competition. Exactly. He refuses to work with Vader, uh, for the most part, I, I know he, he eventually will kind of get there, but just Hulk Hulk in WCW was really he had too much leeway and he was too paranoid and just really had no idea of what it was that the audience did like about him, I think. 
and he really just lost the plot for like a solid two yeah, years. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I mostly blame WCW for giving him the power to do this, but it, it does make me laugh when I hear him talk about how paranoid someone like Roddy Piper was, and if Piper had done business, they could have swapped the belts back three or four times and done a real hot program. And I'm like, everybody after Roddy Piper lost to you, and you gave none of them a win. Yeah, ask Bret Hart how that uh, plan worked out Absolutely. for him. Absolutely. The, the one guy that you gave a loss to, the Warrior, you insisted on WCW blowing a ton of money just to get that back in the worst match I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, I can't wait for our show to get to that point and cover that. I'm very yeah, excited. Same, same here. I can't wait for that one. That's, a, it, that's one of the matches that's so bad. I love to watch it. So that'll do it for The Clash. Um, coming up in competition is SummerSlam SummerSlam starts off with that classic SummerSlam music, which I absolutely love. Um, this might be the last year they use that tune, I think. It's great to hear it. I love the old pay-per-view themes that you... I wish just once they'd bring Hell it back. Yeah. You know, I know that now they get, like, uh, sponsored songs and they make deals with record companies, but just once bring back the old SummerSlam or the old WrestleMania theme. I'd love to hear it. I those. wouldn't even mind Roman Reigns winning the next Rumble if it's opened up with that classic rumble music and vince going roman reigns <laughs> it would go it would go a long way towards mitigating my <laughs> yeah um spoiler alert for what are we about eight weeks out roman will win the rumble <laughs> so as we you heard it first <laughs> as we said uh summer slams from the united center first ever um event held there and the first person to walk out on the show is the macho man randy savage who will be the mc for the night basically just comes out and welcomes everybody and introduces jerry lawler and vince mcmahon this is uh the macho man's final wwf pay-per-view appearance yeah, right sad here. times as well because it's definitely as he showed later they could have got a lot more juice out of the macho man Absolutely. We hear Jerry Lawler telling us that Shawn Michaels and Diesel beat the Head Shrinkers on a house show last night and are our new tag team champions. Fucking Shawn Michaels. I, like, there's no point. The night before a pay-per-view where the Head Shrinkers are set to defend their belts, the titles have to go on to Diesel and Shawn. Shawn hasn't been wrestling. He's been mostly just managing Diesel. Uh, one of those times where he just... You know, doesn't feel like working, takes a little bit of time off, still has to be on TV, still wants to be the focal point of attention, just doesn't want to get in the ring all that much. So he decides he wants to do a little bit of wrestling again, and instantly he's got a belt on him, even though it makes zero sense for them to do yep. so. It just infuriates me. And I like Sean now, but just even going back and watching him at this point just makes me angry <laughs> and it ruins the heat for the opening contest um which is the head shrinkers taking on bam bam bigelow and old favorite of mine irs 
Well, at least with no belts on the line, they can have a nice, clean finish to this yeah, match, right? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, Ted DiBiase, of course, coming out with IRS and Bam Bam, big part of his million-dollar corporation. Um, and we... Um, what have I got here? Um, oh, yeah. Oh, the head shrinkers. The head shrinkers have Afa and uh, Captain Louis Albano, yeah. who has been gone. He's been gone since the 80s. This was kind of... This was his first run in quite a while. Yeah, he's uh, the greatest ever manager of tag teams. I think he had over 20 tag team championship teams. Uh, very impressive. Oh, this is what my first note is. So basically, they, Bam Bam and Fatou start in the match, but Vince keeps calling Fatou Samu. And I'm sat there wondering, I remember as a kid, I couldn't tell them apart. And watching this back now, I'm like, how the fuck could I not tell them apart? They don't look anything alike. <laughs> Well, especially because I just go, which one's Rikishi? Okay, that one. And that's how I always remember <laughs> yeah. which one's Rikishi. And if you're ever not sure, look for the one with the massive stab scar on his belly. <laughs> yeah, that'll do so, it. So, Fatu comes off with a clothesline for a two count and goes for a slam, but Bam Bam being too big lands on him and picks up a two count of his own. And then Bam Bam hits his awesome-looking Enziguri, a move I always loved, but misses his top rope headbutt. Bam Bam is so ahead of his time in terms of being a big guy who does little guy moves. It's so fun to watch him because no one else, I feel like his size is doing this guy. I mean, not many wrestlers period are doing his kind of stuff in WWF in 1994. So he is just an absolute treat. I love. There's a lot of, um, it's thrown around too often agile for his size with the bigger guys, but outside of Vader, Bam Bam's the only person I can think of that really could go and not go for his size, but could go period. Yeah, I would, I would, put Ray trailer uh, sort of on the cusp of that. He sort of, he can do some things that are very impressive given how big he is, but he's not exactly a great worker over like an extended. No, match. I'm a big boss man fan as well. So I, I'd, I'd agree with that. Definitely. Fatu comes back with the clothesline before tagging in Samu and they hit a lovely double super kick for a two count before IRS comes in to huge heat from the crowd. I absolutely adore me some IRS. I'm going to kind of come down on the opposite side of that. I cannot stand. I, I, he's so plodding and boring. His promos are terrible. I've really just never been a fan. He's the one guy in this match that I do not care for. <laughs> I'm yet to meet the person that agrees with me on this. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, you're right in that he does get good heat. So, I mean, that's that's the point. So, uh, if the crowd is is mad at him, you know what? What can I fault him for? He's just a big cozy part of my childhood, so I'll never, I'll never stop loving him. <laughs> Samu hits a slam and a hip toss, and then a kick for a two count before missing a crossbody. And IRS tries to, I've uh, got IRS uh, tries to fly out of the ring with him. Um, Samu goes for a pin attempt, and Vince McMahon gives us one of my favorite lines of commentary of all time. He got him. He got him. Oh no, he didn't. Every goddamn two count. <laughs> And then he'll do it in a, you know, we've got a cage match later, and he does it through all that. Oh, he's going to escape. He's going to escape. Oh, no, he didn't. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's constant from Vinnie Mac. Fatu comes in, and Bam Bam low bridges him from the apron before tagging in himself. Uh, they both attempt double cross bodies and both go down. Both make the tag back out, and Samu and IRS come in. Samu hits a backdrop, and then on to Bam Bam as well. Hits a second rope headbutt, but Bam Bam makes a save. 
And then we get the head shrinkers with a double team headbutt. And then a double team move, sort of like the stroke, but one on either side. And Fatu comes off the top rope with a splash. But Ted DiBiase distracts the referee. Bam Bam makes a save. Nails Lou Albano. And this brings Afra in to attack Bam Bam. And as you mentioned earlier, the clean finish. The bell's ringing here for disqualification. And classic brawl to the back. I really like when... uh... Albano gets nailed. He's he's like 61 years old, I want to say, at this point. And he really doesn't want to take that bump, especially all the way from the apron. So what he does is he hangs onto the top rope and, like, leans back slowly until he's barely over the apron. Then he lets go, so he kind of bumps out of the apron and then, like, holds onto the bottom rope as he lets himself down under the ground. It's as gentle as he could possibly do it. <laughs> Good old Lou. We go from there to some Leslie Nielsen skits with The Undertaker um, having the scoop on The Undertaker. And this stuff is, even as a kid, I found this stuff really tiresome. What did you think about this whole Leslie Nielsen shit? It's, I mean, they're going for Naked Gun style humor, but they just, they their writing is so much worse. You know, I think now they've got enough, um, for all the criticism you give the writing team now, I think they've got enough people who are experienced in television and writing where they could actually write some decent Naked Gun-style spoof jokes. But back here, I think this is just Bruce Prichard, like, scrawling him on a cocktail napkin while he and Vince are up doing coke the <laughs> night before. And it's all the jokes are bad. It's it's really, really lame. Leslie Nielsen uh, does his best, and, and he, you know, he kind of acquits himself just fine. Um, they've also got George Kennedy, who was, like, his boss from the Naked Gun movies and Police Squad, the show that preceded him. And uh, I guess I was, I was listening to... Uh, Bruce Pritchard's podcast, apparently they didn't plan to bring in George Kennedy. It was only Leslie Nielsen, uh, but Leslie Nielsen asked them to to give George Kennedy a payday because he was just at a really bad point in his life. I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know if it was, you know, he just financially or drinking or what, but uh, Leslie Nielsen even offered to pay George Kennedy out of his own pocket um, if they would just please use him and make him feel like, you know, an important part of the show. And Vince agreed. He brought him on the show, and Vince Vince paid him. He didn't make Leslie Nielsen pay him. So I thought that was actually kind of a sweet Vince story. And you don't you don't get those a lot. So I wanted to make sure and make. No, that's quite cool. I think the only the real problem with with this stuff is that the audience that are going to buy into this whole Undertaker storyline are too young to know anything about the Naked Gun. That's absolutely true, and it's just a real contrast in tones where you've got the. I mean, I know it's two zombie Undertakers from the old West wrestling. But it's treated somewhat seriously within the confines of WWF programming, except when you cut to these skits with Leslie Nielsen, at which point, like, it's a goofy comedy where Undertaker is delivering him Domino's pizza and he's just missing him and he's he's and all these like bad puns. So it just doesn't jive. It, it really brings the storyline down and detracts from the seriousness in which it's presented 95 percent of the yeah, time, which we'll see whether or not that has an effect later on in the show. We then go to our next matchup, which was something I was actually really looking forward to. Alundra Blaze defending her women's title up against Bull Nakano. So a, this was in, during a brief period where the women's division was really good. 94-95 um, before they made the big roster cuts. Alundra Blaze and the you know series of opponents they brought her in did some really good stuff. Yeah, Bull Nakano is just great. And I'm really, this is kind of fun to watch this match because uh, on, on my podcast, 20 Years of Nitro, we are approaching Hogwild 96, where these two have a match for uh, the WDC. Well, is there a women's title? I think they just have a match. I don't think there's any title on the line. It's Oh, it's their motorcycles. They have them. 
match where the loser gets their motorcycle destroyed. So it's fun to watch them here in 94 as a little preview for what I'm going to see in Hell 96. Yeah. And in typical WWF fashion, they show a little bit of uh, racism during the entrance by having Bull Nakano come out to the Orient Express, Express theme or stock Japanese music number one. Yeah, I feel like any time they've got someone on loan from Japan... They're just going to play this music, and it does not matter no. who it is. The match gets started, and there's some really good action. Bull Nakano with a good clothesline. Alantra Blaze comes back with a drop kick, but misses a second. And then Bull Nakano with a couple of really huge hair beals onto Alantra Blaze, a clothesline, and a big leg drop for a two count, which forces the crowd into a big USA champ. Yeah, the crowd is very into this match, all the way, especially at the ending, but all the way through. The crowd is surprisingly, you know, you think women's wrestling has had a lot of problems over the years and it's starting to get better now. But if you look back here, women's wrestling is very over with this Chicago. Oh, absolutely. Blaze comes back with a huge Hurricane Rana for a two count, a spin kick, but misses a second. And then Bull Nakano fires back with a choke bomb and a Boston Crab, but Blaze gets itself to the ropes. We get then a really cool hybrid looking move. I, the best way I could describe it is a sharpshooter mixed with a surfboard by Bull Nakano. It's amazing. It's one of the coolest submissions I've ever seen. It's so, so great. Do you remember when um, Kurt Angle and Chris Benoit were teaming and they would simultaneously lock on their submission moves on an opponent? It's like Bulldecano managed to do both herself. <laughs> um, we get... Um, um, uh, Luna, who is managing Bull Nakano, a cheap shot from the outside before Bull comes back with an armbar, but Alandra Blaze puts on a sleeper and then a few takedowns, gets her a two count. Bull Nakano hits a backdrop for a two, a clothesline. Blaze comes back with a backslide for a two, and then Bull hits a huge powerbomb for a two count herself. A big body slam, but misses a top rope leg drop, and Alandra Blaze surprisingly gets Bull Nakano up for a German suplex, which was her finisher for the one, two, three in a really, really enjoyable match. Yeah, I, I really uh, thought this match was excellent. It was, if not for the cage match, probably the best match on the show. Uh, so I was really, really happy to see how over it was with the crowd because you wouldn't have wanted to see that great work kind of go to waste. So I was really happy with the overall presentation. Yeah, definitely. We then get um, a promo from Todd Pettengale with Shawn Michaels and Diesel, which we'll splice in here. It's typical... Shawn Michaels, mid-90s dickish stuff with Diesel just putting in a few words of, of dominance in between. Thank you very much, Vince. We are indeed here with the new WWF Tag Team Champions just last night. Market Square Arena, Indianapolis. Big Daddy Cool, Intercontinental Champion Diesel, and Shawn Michaels, Heartbreak Kid, taking the titles away from the Head Shrinkers. That's right, Tosh. You know something? Between Big Daddy Cool and myself, collectively, we have held the Intercontinental Championship belt the last two years. So we got to thinking the Heartbreak Hotel needs just a little bit more gold. So we decided to go out and become the World Wrestling Federation Tag Team Champions. And what happens? Presto, change Big Daddy Cool, and the Heartbreak Kid deliver. Just proven that we are the two most happening cats in all of the World Wrestling Federation. However, tonight it will not be a tag title match. <laughs> Pinhead. It'll be the bad guy, Razor Ramon, against Diesel one-on-one. The self-proclaimed bad guy, Razor Ramon. Well, maybe my moniker should be Midas, because everything I touch turns to gold. Well, let me tell you something, bad guy. In the Windy City, tonight 
It ain't gonna happen. You ain't getting my gold. You know why? Because me and the heartbreak like where we're at, and that's on top. Bad guy, you've had a lot of chances, and you haven't come through yet. What makes you think it's gonna happen tonight? Folks, we may, gonna be, happen. we may be overlooking one thing. NFL Hall of Famer, sweetness, former Chicago Bear, Walter Payton. I got news for you. Big Daddy Cool and the Heartbreak Kid overlook everybody, especially you, you little munchkin. I got news for you, Razor Ramon and sweetness. When Diesel and the Heartbreak Kid get done with you, you two cats are going to be oh so bitter. Oh, let's go, big man. Another Wayne. Well, I thought what was funny is he he says basically that I decided that I wanted to have a title again, and presto changeo, we're the tag team champions. And that's both true in kayfabe <laughs> and backstage. Like, that is essentially what happened. So, kudos to you, I wouldn't Sean, want to I defend guess. a belt against Diesel on a house show, though. He's got a knack for taking them when the cameras aren't rolling. He also calls Todd Pettengill a munchkin, but Todd looks like, if anything, one inch shorter than Sean. <laughs> like, they're essentially the same height. Ah, uh, fair enough. And our next contest is Diesel defending his Intercontinental Championship against Razor Ramon, who is brought out with Chicago hero Walter Payton of the Chicago Bears. It's pretty amazing how the Click managed to only work with each other for a solid, like, three years. Yeah, they are awesome at it. We get a stare down from all four in the ring to good heat from the crowd, and it gives us a chance to have a bit of a wide-angled shot from the camera and i get to admire the classic blue mats around the outside the old summer slam skirt and just really take me back to childhood big time vince is pretty um pumped up for this one as well he tells us on commentary this is going to be a humdinger so some classic vince <laughs> verbiage there vince is about if i remember right he's about a month removed from being cleared in the steroid trial so i think this whole show he is like just exuberant that he's not going to prison <laughs> Razor gets started with some punches and a discus punch uh, before Sean gives Diesel a pep talk on the floor. Diesel comes back in and gets some strikes and works over the back of Razor. A clothesline, chokes him with his boot and a face buster before Razor comes back with a back suplex before Diesel tosses Razor over the outside and Sean, making himself a pest, removes one of the top turnbuckle covers. Sean making himself a pest is right. He, he makes this entire match... Like, he, he's the focal point of the match a lot of the time. Yeah, and he spends a lot of it egging on Walter Payton, which is the sequence we go into here, um, and just basically egging him on to chase him around the ring without really ever getting caught or looking like getting caught. I like uh, Jerry says at one point, I don't know what the exact context, context, but I have in my notes, he says, can you imagine Michaels walking around with that tag team championship belt around his waist? And it's, yes, I can imagine it. It's happening in front of me right now. <laughs> It's not that hard to uh, picture that image. Earl gets distracted, and we have Sean clotheslining Razor to get a bit more heat on himself, and this allows Diesel to take over with some corner elbows, some corner knees, before Diesel stops Razor Ramon being whipped into the exposed turnbuckle, but then Sean distracts the referee, and Diesel does it anyway. He hits a sidewalk slam for a two count. Snake eyes and a classic boss man attack on the ropes. A clothesline and an elbow for a two count before locking in a chin lock. Diesel then comes back with another big boot for a two count. An abdominal stretch. And then Razor comes back with an abdominal stretch of his own. But Diesel hip tosses him out of it having worked on the back earlier in the match. 
we get a little bit of comeuppance from Razor, sending Diesel into the exposed turnbuckle for a two count. And then he pulls Diesel to the post, uh, basically balls first. So still no DQ there though. <laughs> yep. And an awesome second rope bulldog, which really starts to get the crowd alive, who come pretty hot in this match. They are really into the action here. I wish that I had written down all the times in this match that Vince McMahon makes sure to point out that Diesel's seven feet tall. Yeah. Because it's, it's at, I think it's more than five times that he goes out of his way to just say that he's He's seven feet really, tall. really high on Diesel at this point in time. You can see the wheel spinning that Diesel's about to become the man. Oh, absolutely. Razor hits a slam for a two before Sean gets back on the apron, but he's nailed for this time. Diesel then signals for the jackknife, but it's reversed. And Walter Payton distracts the ref, allowing Sean to hit a super kick on Razor, except he gets out of the way and actually nails Diesel. Sean's then chased by Walt- Walter Payton again. And eventually Earl Hebner gets back in the ring and counts the three for Razor to take the Intercontinental Championship back from Diesel. Yeah, so the... The finishing move in this match and the move that's made look the most strong is Sweet Chin Music because he hits it three and a half minutes go by and then there's a pin and it it works. It's definitely far too long a period of time between that kick and the pin. It's it's up there with Triple H hitting the pedigree on (laughs) Booker T at WrestleMania. It's, I mean, it's that length of time. Absolutely. Razor then. (laughs) You know, I, 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 earlier in the match, uh, there's something on your show, if I'm right, it seemed like in the episodes I've listened to, yes, Big Move of the Week, yes, is that yes. a thing? Okay. Okay. So I'm going to go with Shawn Michaels looking over at uh, NFL Hall of Famer Walter Payton and yelling, hey boy, at him several times, which is deeply racist. <laughs> I cannot top that. <laughs> it's... So yeah, that is going to be my dick move Well deserved, week. well deserved. <laughs> Um, Razor then celebrates with Walter Payton and Walter Payton's son in the ring for a little bit of a feel-good moment. So the crowd got what they wanted. How much would you pay for that uh, Razor Ramon t-shirt that Walter Payton and his son had bought? <laughs> it, it was a thing of beauty, wasn't it? Oh, if they sold that now and it was like, I don't care if it was $45, I, I would go out and buy that shirt. It's incredible. <laughs> I, I've... um. I've gotten into, you know what I've got recently is the really awesome WWF socks they're doing. I've got... Oh, yeah, I've seen those. I I've got the, um, the Ted DiBiase and the Doink the Clown ones. Nice. Mm. Good choices. Uh, what did you think I thought of it was really good, yeah. I, it was enjoyable. I mean, I think there was, as you said, too much outside shenanigans, but Diesel and Razor have good chemistry, so I didn't mind it. Yeah, I thought you're right. They do have good chemistry. And even though I'm going to be a hypocrite here, there are too many outside shenanigans. Uh, but I think it was a good way of distracting the fact from Diesel does not have 20 minutes worth of material. So you kind of need Sean to draw that focus and eat up a few of those minutes with his kind of bullshit. So I, in concert, I think those things worked well to the matches the- better. Betterment? Is that I think a word? so, yeah. I'm pretty sure it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The, go. big, the good thing about this, I guess, as well, is in comparison to The Clash, is the story, whilst obvious, at least went down the right path and finished the right way. Absolutely. It, and you you know that if it weren't Scott Hall, if it were somebody that were not in the click, I feel like that match would have ended in a, yeah, in a different Yeah, Shane Douglas way. wasn't picking up a win in this scenario. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, from here, we go to a really interesting segment. Um, this is something you don't see very often. The only other one that springs to mind is, is Piper and Brett at WrestleMania 8, but opponents being interviewed side by side and not really getting on. Um, it's Tatanka and Lex Luger, and they show the results of a poll, which was basically asking, has Lex Luger sold out to Ted DiBiase? So I watched a lot of the Raws leading up to this because before I started my podcast, I was determined I was going to watch every Raw episode ever, and this was about how far I got before starting the podcast. Uh, 54% of the crowd think that Lex Luger has sold out to Ted DiBiase uh, due to a lot of the things happening on those previous weeks' Raw. Yeah, it's such a great way of suckering marks out of their 99 cents to say you got to call and vote. And then the, the payoff is in this promo, we mentioned the results of the vote a couple times. And that's it. That's that's what you spent your money on. <laughs> yeah, some people have got more money than cents. We get a good recap of all the events of the last few weeks that have led to this and Ted DiBiase heavily insinuating and basically outright saying that he has bought Lex Luger. And that's pretty much enough for the crowd to believe him and bite on this. If you were to take a drink every time they say sold out in this uh, promo and in the subsequent match, you would be, I mean, you die of alcohol poisoning about <laughs> 20 minutes in. This one's a classic angle I remember from my childhood, so I did really enjoy it. Um, Jerry Lawler does mention during the entrances that 40% are still cheering for Lex, and Vince says, well, 54% aren't, so um, that's, I guess, why Lex never got the belt at WrestleMania 10. <laughs> <laughs> and um, during the entrances here, I made a note. What is Tatanka's favorite letter of the alphabet? Oh, I didn't write that down. Well, oh, I... <laughs> it is terrible. I hate Tatanka. <laughs> yeah, he never really showed much. He had that decent match with Sean at WrestleMania 9, which only looks good because of the rest of that show so exactly. bad. He... He didn't really bring much to the table. Yeah, he's just, he was he was one of them characters. It's, it's so funny because it, uh, it's the exact same as IRS, who I love, but he's just so one-dimensional and see-through. I just couldn't stand him. I mean, the way that they just constantly refer to him as Native American Tatanka, they have to like put that in there every time. It just seems so odd. We know he's a Native American. It's... I don't, I don't understand why they feel the need to constantly reinforce that. That's, that a, that's a thing that's kept through to nowadays. I find it really difficult to watch modern-day pay-per-views with Michael Cole saying, this big six-man main event featuring the architect Seth Rollins, the lunatic fringe Dean Ambrose, and the big dog Roman Reigns. It's like, oh, shut up. Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for branding, and it has its place, but they go more overboard with it than any other company I yep. can think of. Uh, we get a little bit of an argument to start, so they don't really go into the match straight away. Uh, they're just basically debating whether he sold out, and it's very pantomime because they're very much making it obvious what they're saying to everyone. But, I mean, I guess it suits the story of what they're going for here. I mean, that's wrestling. You know, they're playing to the very back row of that audience because before it was really a televised event, that's what you needed to do. You needed to make sure everybody could see everything. So I even today, I feel like they do that too much. They they keep in mind the 18,000 people or whatever, not that much anymore in the arena, uh, really at the expense of their millions of people on TV who could do with more of a subtle Absolutely. presentation. Um, we get a headlock from Lex to start and a shoulder before Tatanka comes back with a crossbody for a two count and Lex hits a small package for a two count before they start going to some right hands. We get a hip toss by Lex and a suplex. 
some chops from Tatanka and a power slam for a two count. Vince McMahon calls this a power slam of sorts. So I'm not quite sure what <laughs> what makes it not a power slam. <laughs> Tatanka then hulks up for some reason <laughs> before hitting some chops uh, for a two count, a suplex and a top rope chop for a two count to absolutely no heat from the crowd. Lex comes back. Sorry. Yeah, the crowd crowd has been really into everything so far. They're dead they, silent. They just don't know who to cheer. So, you know, you can understand that's the way it's gone, but they've basically split their crowd in half. Tatanka's not come off very well during this either because he's, you know, he's very over the top in accusing Lex of selling out. I mean, even if he had, how does that affect Tatanka? They were not sort of portrayed as best friends in real life leading up to this. So I'm not, you know, neither of them come off well. Absolutely. I think that this, uh, well, I'll get, I want to say that. Okay. Lex hits a clothesline and Ted DiBiase makes his way out to the ring. Lex hits a power slam and Ted with a bunch of money distracts the referee and distracts Lex Luger, sorry. And Tatanka hits a roll up for the one, two, three. And this leads to Lex and Tatanka arguing quite a bit more and Ted DiBiase coming in the ring. Lex then kicks the money out of Ted DiBiase's hands and from behind Tatanka jumps Lex Luger with some great camera work with Lex lay on the floor after the beatdown from Tatanka. The camera is sort of on the mat looking with its main focus on a crumpled up dollar bill with Lex sort of in the background. So really, really great production for an otherwise fairly flat angle. Yeah, that that shot was incredible. I agree. Uh, The issue I really have with this angle is you really need to start rehabbing Lex because certainly it's been all downhill since like SummerSlam last year. And they do this storyline where he keeps getting accused of being sold out and they convince apparently 54% of their audience, or at least of the people that were willing to vote, um, that he has turned heel. So now you have a lot of people who are starting to think that he's actually a bad guy. Then you show that he's not actually a bad guy, that it's in fact Tataka, and he gets his ass beat. I think you've still diminished him in the eyes of the audience because people have started to convince themselves that he's not good. Finding out that he actually has been the whole time, I don't think is going to bring them all the way back on Lex. And then the fact that he gets just beaten down for five boring minutes, that's not helping him either. So maybe they were really trying to build up Tatanka and they didn't mind doing it at the expense of Lex, but just, I feel like Lex still could have been saved at this point, but after this angle, it's, I don't see how you can retrieve him anymore. It's very, um, telling that Vince makes up his mind on a guy as a top guy then when he changes it to someone else the other one is basically dead to him because Diesel here is now the guy to Vince and Lex it's a failed experiment and there's no interest in bringing him back yeah and and Brett the sort of next top guy after Hulk is gone is defending the belt and in the semi-main and he'll defend the belt in spots other than the main event quite a bit oh absolutely through all of his reigns i mean even before he, he exits the company the two months prior he's defending in semi-main events ted and tatanka finally hug in the ring after selling that they might not and they get some boos from the crowd which wake up a little bit um this is far more of an angle than a match tatanka then locks in the million dollar dream afterwards and puts some money into t- uh, Lex's mouth a la Ted DiBiase before we go backstage and see Gorilla Monsoon manning the hotline for the night. Yeah, he says he's waiting to talk to either DiBiase or Tatanka. And oh, he also says that uh, Tatanka is a disgrace to all Native Americans, <laughs> which is pretty fucked up because it's not like when a white guy turns heel, 
you know, anyone says like he's a disgrace to all <laughs> white people. I've never seen that in a wrestling. No, show. you're absolutely right. <laughs> that that would seem a pretty strange thing to say now that you mention it. <laughs> oh man, we go to our next contest, which over both shows was the match I was looking forward to the absolute least: Jeff Jarrett taking on Mabel. I mean, it's yeah, you can only look forward to this and thinking maybe it'll be a train wreck that I can enjoy. <laughs> so that's J-E-double-F, as was the style at the time, and taking on Mabel, who's still in Men of a Mission, Men on a Mission, sorry. And Oscar's rap on the way to the ring is surprisingly decent. I remember a lot of them being pretty crap, but this one was all right, and it got the crowd into it. The crowd was definitely into it, I, and I didn't notice it as being especially bad. So yeah, it, it, I think it was all right. Jeff Jarrett struts at the start of the match before Mabel tosses him out the ring, and King on commentary a commentary calls Mabel Barney. So that's it. Mabel hits a lifting choke before Jeff Jarrett leapfrogs over Mabel, which I found really impressive, but comes off and eats an elbow on the other side. Mabel hits a slam and clotheslines Jeff Jarrett to the outside, who gets in Oscar's face and throws him into the ring steps before tripping Mabel and coming in with a second rope fish drop. And it's at this point in the match I'm realizing this is going to be long and pretty dull. Oh, yeah. I You could realize that when Mabel walks out of the entrance <laughs> area. We get a second rope axe handle, a uh, pair of them actually from Jeff Jarrett, but then he goes up top to come in with another one but gets caught. Jarrett locks in a sleeper, and then in probably the most interesting spot of the match, Mabel hits his beautiful spin kick, which I always liked. It only gets him a two count, though. And oh, possibly the other most interesting point of the match, we see Abe Knuckleball Schwartz on strike in the crowd. Oh, yeah. Brooklyn Brawler always figuring out a way to get a paycheck. <laughs> Vince gives us another, he got him, he got him, no, he didn't, before Mabel hits a slam for a two count. And goes on the outside and attempts an avalanche on the outside, which can only mean one thing. Jarrett's moving and he eats the ring post. Back in and we get a second rope splash attempt uh, missing from Mabel, which allows Jarrett to pick up a two. Uh, he misses a standing bonsai drop. And this allows Jeff Jarrett to pick up the one, two, three in a crappy ending to a crappy match. Yeah, this match was not good. Mabel... Someone of his size, it's very difficult to have them be a baby face because he can't sell. Um, and his, his offense isn't particularly exciting. He does have a couple of good moves. He's got that spin kick. He's got one he doesn't do here where he actually like flips over. He'll His opponent will be sitting and he'll flip over them and do kind of a snapmare as he flips. And that that's his best move, and we don't see it in this match, which is disappointing. Um, so, yeah, this one was a real clunker. I just You could easily skip this and not yeah. miss a beat. We get Bobby, uh, sorry, Bob. We get Bret Hart and Owen Hart recaps um, coming into the and promos as well coming into the cage match. The Owen promo is actually really interesting. It's in a darkly lit cage with Jim Neidhart and Vince McMahon in the arena earlier in the night, and it's um, really, really good stuff. It builds Owen quite nicely as the top heel. World Wrestling Federation title will be yours, Brett. It's over. It's over, yeah. Brett. It's all come to an end. You are finished. Come SummerSlam, there is going to be a new reign in the Hart family. It is going to be me, and the whole family is going to jump on my bandwagon. But this will be settled between you and me, Brett. Nobody is going to interfere. It'll be settled, and I am going to become the World Wrestling Federation champion. And I want you to take a look exactly how it's going to be on that hot summer night, Brett. Yeah, I thought this video package was great. Uh, it really explains very clearly who these two men are 
what their personal issues are and what's brought them to this point and sort of the ancillary characters like uh, Jimmy Anvil Neidhart. So I thought, you know, it, it wasn't as slickly produced as they are now, but it really did a great job of getting the story. Absolutely. Um, Vince McMahon interviews Stu and Helen Hart, which is somewhat interesting. Um, Helen's just never been a good character at all on, on WWF TV. Yeah, the Stu is just like a decrepit old man at this point, unfortunately, and Helen is seems very unsure of herself and what to say. The real stars are certainly the the siblings sitting around and uh, just the insanity that is the Hart family. Absolutely. Uh, Todd interviews Bret Hart, who has strep throat, uh, but does put on a good promo and really sells the importance of this match. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's going to be a Hitman promo, so you kind of know that it's not going to be perfect. And I think he stumbles over his words a couple times, but the content of what he's saying, and at times, his emotion, you know, it's maybe difficult to see that emotion because it's a very subtle Canadian sort of affectation that he has. But when he directly addresses Owen at a few points during the promo, I think it really is, is Yeah, I enjoyed stuff. this and made me look forward to the match, which I remember as being quite good. Um, and that is, of course, our next contest. Um, coming into the buildup, we also find out that Amongst all the Hart siblings, Jim Neidhart sat in the crowd and sat a couple of spots in front of him. Is a returning Davy Boy Smith, who looks gigantic. He is roided up to the gills. Yep, he's right wearing now. a button-up top with no sleeves and has his hair out of the braids and just long and flowing with glasses on. So it's a different-looking Davy Boy Smith. The hair is bizarre. I've never seen his hair look like that before. It's very strange. I also like Bruce Hart, who's kind of next to him who's wearing a leather jacket with the sleeves pulled up and shades for some reason. He's wearing sunglasses the whole event. Bruce Hart is such a <laughs> dick. It's great. It's One so day I'm going to meet the person that says Bruce Hart is a favorite of theirs. <laughs> but it probably won't be today. <laughs> oh, you know he just used the whole weekend to try to convince Vince that he should be Brett's <laughs> next feud. That, you know, he's the real brother. with this. Oh, it just would have been... I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for any Bruce Hart Vince McMahon Vince conversation. Must just avoid him at all costs at any gathering. <laughs> <laughs> Vince even says on commentary a few times during the match, he says like Bruce Hart's the most volatile of the Hearts. So he, he goes out of his way to like make fun of him. A <laughs> and do you bit. notice during the entrances as well, Bruce has got to get the spotlight on him. Brett sort of comes to slap hands with all the family members, but Bruce has to grab him and bring him in for a hug. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. This is his moment. He's going to shine. I'm on camera now. In the ring, Owen jumps Brett right away, goes to a 10-punch spot, a European uppercut, stomps and strikes, before Brett comes back with an inverted atomic drop, a clothesline, and they exchange punches before Brett hits a DDT, a leg drop, and goes for the first escape attempt, trying to climb the cage. But Owen stops it, hits an enziguri, and attempts to climb the cage himself. So this is something Brett talks about in his book, how they wanted to make this different to all the other cage matches and add a sense of realism with a lot more escape attempts and something that comes into play all through this match. Well, and yeah, and they, they changed the rules a little bit. If you uh, listen to the announcement at the beginning, they say the only two ways to uh, win this match are to escape over the top or through the door. So there is no pinfall or submission, unlike a normal Yeah, they played match. fast and loose with that one over the years, whether or not that's allowed or not, uh, depending on whether or not they bring a referee in sometimes as well. We get a back suplex from Brett and a bulldog. He goes for the door this time, but 
Oh, he can't get out. Owen stops him, who goes for the door himself. Brett then goes for the door. There's a lot of mad scrambles, both diving over each other and then diving for legs to stop each other going out. Um, Owen nearly gets out here in a spot that is very well done because he's basically on the floor and Brett's got him by the ankles and has to drag him back in. Yeah, overall in this match, there's very little um, slow climbing, you know, where wrestles real. They can do every move at, at regular speed. When they are going to climb that cage, all of a sudden they're moving, you know, at half speed. This match, they are trying to escape at almost every moment. You know, a few times they've got to, like, slow down a bit because somebody's out of position. But they are moving at full speed at all times. It's it's great. It's such a realistic cage match as much as you can get Absolutely. something like that. Brett climbs to get out again, but Owen hits him with a press slam. There's a bit of a slugfest on the top rope, and Owen comes off with a lovely missile dropkick landing on his back rather than side on. Just looked really, really good. Yeah, it, his missile dropkick was great. The execution of their moves through the whole match is just crisp and fantastic. You mentioned a DDT that Brett did earlier that I thought was great. Um, really just you see moves that you see all the time but when these two do it it just comes across as, as something Owen else. then makes a run and jump for the top of the cage which I found really cool he basically just launches himself off the floor and up and they fight at the top of the cage but they both fall down and sell for a little bit when they get back up Brett hits a backdrop and there's a head clash Brett misses a second rope el- elbow drop and holds on to the, um, the hair of Owen over the top who's trying to escape out of the cage and then Brett presses him off the top. The crowd are really hot when Brett climbs, and it's something that they sort of really start to get into here, that it's it's like it can end at any moment, and they're desperate for it to be Brett. Yeah, and I don't know if the crowd is convinced, really, that Owen could be the champion, or, you know, could beat Brett. Well, I shouldn't say that, because he did at WrestleMania 10, but, you know, he clearly seems like he's a, a level below Brett in terms of star power but the fact that you could just win this match by walking out a door i think really helps the crowd invest into the possibility that owen could actually pull this off we finally get the cage coming into use as a weapon here as brett throws owen into the cage owen hits a lovely suplex and then a back suplex followed by a pile driver in a good sequence and he um goes to climb again but brett knocks him down and crutches himself on the on the ropes and we get a really good struggle at the door with both trying to get out once again. Brett hits a slingshot on Owen into the cage, and Owen comes back with a spin kick as they then both attempt to climb the cage, but Brett superplexes Owen off the top to the mat in a really, really cool spot. There was a great superplex, and it just... You can really see their arms firmly locked around each other's heads to protect the back of their head. Like, these two guys are... With one notable exception for Owen, they're they're known for you know just protecting their opponents so well, and you can really actually see that in their work if you're looking yeah, for it. Absolutely, good stuff. Owen goes for a sharpshooter, which Brett reverses. They both attempt to climb again, but Owen gets his leg trapped in the cage, hooked in, and lent over backwards, and this allows Brett to climb out and win the matchup. But this is not where it ends. Anvil knocks Davy Boy Smith and Diana over the rail to the, the arena floor, which looked a little bit nasty for Diana. And then, yeah, that was uh, that was something that I guess they had kind of all planned together. And Brett and Owen were furious that they would involve Diana in a physical spot like that. But I guess uh, Jim and Diana and Davy just thought it was <laughs> hilarious. It's pretty good. Um, Anvil then comes in and basically locks the door. It does take him a while to get the lock on the door 
though, while the brothers are trying to get in and get to him. But when he does get it locked, uh, they take over on Brett, the Anvil, and Owen begin to do sort of a a double-team beatdown while Davy Boy tries to climb, and then all the other brothers follow suit. But the Anvil and Owen keep knocking them off and one by one go back and beat on Brett a little bit more until Davy Boy really fires up on the outside, gets himself up, as do the brothers, and then Jim and Owen make their exit to the back pretty hastily to end a great match and a pretty decent ending segment to keep the feud going. Yeah, I thought this all was, I thought it was one of the best cage matches of all time. Um, there's none that come to mind for me immediately that are better than this. And I thought the ending angle was was really well done. Um, it seems like they're transferring Brett a little bit to Neidhart, and maybe Davey's going to feud with Owen. Um, but I guess we'll have to yeah, see yeah, where that really goes. Yeah, really good stuff all around. So this was the one I was looking forward to, and it didn't disappoint even many years later. So after this match, we've got Todd chasing an irate Owen in a really good shouty promo from Owen in the Anvil in the backstage area. So really continuing things here and making them both look strong. And there's no major flubs a la kicked your leg out from your leg for Owen this time either. I love also he raises both his arms like he thinks that he won. Because in Owen's mind, he did win, you know. that's It's such classic Owen to just raise your arms after that and be like, I did it. It's so love great. It. We then get a hype video for The Undertaker versus The Undertaker, including a recap of the Royal Rumble casket match with Yokozuna, where all the heels came out and put The Undertaker to rest. The classically bad raising of The Undertaker out of the casket from the Royal Rumble. Uh, I'd forgot just how cheesy that was until I saw the package. It's, wow, it's way more over the top. My favorite part of the whole thing is just the, like, the electric vault outline of the undertaker raising on the screen and as it gets to the top the an actual undertaker coming from behind it it's just so bad i believe that's marty Gennetti. That's you are correct too, it is <laughs> <laughs> i this is something funny i'm gonna um bring into play some of my own idiocy here i i've read many many times about how it was marty Gennetti impersonating the undertaker and it took me probably 10 15 years to realize that was marty Gennetti and not the undertaker inside the casket talking was marty Gennetti. <laughs> i could never figure out how they did it and then i realized no idiot it's the other one <laughs> yeah so nice. not not the smartest <laughs> not the sharpest knife in the drawer here <laughs> We get the sidings of The Undertaker, which was pretty cheesy, but it did build up some anticipation for him coming back. And then the whole deal with Ted DiBiase claiming he had The Undertaker and Paul Bearer disputing it. I've done some of the... um, I've watched quite... Well, probably all the fake Undertaker matches on Raw leading up to this as well. And he got a lot of the mannerisms right, and then he just you know, go a step too far and expose himself. And the worst thing they did was have him and Ted DiBiase side by side too often and show that they were the same height. Yeah, he definitely does not have the size of the authentic Undertaker. And that's that's certainly the biggest giveaway. I mean, there's other things too. If, if I were watching this back in the day on a smaller standard definition TV, maybe I could have been convinced. I don't, like I said, I wasn't really watching at this point. So even though I was aware of it, I wasn't watching enough to know, like, would I have been fooled or not? I just wasn't wasn't really watching. So tough for me to comment Fair on enough. that. 
We get Ted DiBiase and his Undertaker out first, and then in the introduction, Finkel, in an interesting line, says, the one, the only, the Undertaker to introduce Paul Bear as Undertaker, which is strange in a match that pits Undertaker versus Undertaker. Yeah, they have clearly just sort of given up on this by the time they get to SummerSlam. You know, way back at the beginning of the show when Vince is running through the card, he casually mentions Undertaker versus Undertaker in like a, a half a sentence. There's no height, there's no build. It's the main event, and it's like barely acknowledged until we finally get he's to got, that He's got to be show. thinking at this point in time, why did we put this on last? Absolutely. Get... Go on. And Davey, sorry, uh, Owen and Brett also went longer than their allotted time. So they're now squishing this, which everyone knows is going to be bad. And now they're taking a bunch of time off of it as well. So it is just, it's a disaster. Might have done it a favor though. Oh, that's probably We've got the original Undertaker coming out in a casket wheel by Paul Bearer. Nope, it's not. He opens it up and it's just a really big urn. Jerry Lola speculates that Paul Bearer has no Undertaker. And when he takes the lid off the urn, we get a big light shining through the dark arena. This is enough to bring out the original Undertaker to the classic gong and entrance music. And then as they he gets in the ring, Ted DiBiase and Paul Bearer simultaneously strip their Undertakers, which... Pst, is not quite as creepy as it sounds. <laughs> and the <laughs> seven minutes—it's seven minutes of entrance for yeah, the Undertaker. To think they cut from so, the match and not this. Yeah, that's that's the best part. Is they know they're like, okay, well we've got we've got less time than we thought, but we can't lose any of that entrance because the only thing we have going for us is the atmosphere <laughs> and the theatrics none of the in-ring stuff is going to be worth it. So we're keeping all seven minutes. Somebody backstage was a lot smarter than they get credit for because they knew the second they went face-to-face, this was over. So the Undertaker, the original Undertaker, um, is now donning purple trim as opposed to grey, which Ted DiBiase's Undertaker is wearing a la the original Undertaker outfit. Um, we've got it. I, I put here as well, seeing that it's it's like if you were playing back in, well, around this time, if you were playing Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter and you both picked the same character, this is kind of what you would get. Yes. Uh, yeah, just a slight cel-shaded difference, yeah. The original Undertaker blocks a punch and then they have a double shoulder block. The original Undertaker with a leapfrog and a boot and then a throat thrust sending Ted DiBiase's Undertaker to the floor, who then goes and stalks Paul Bearer. Um, but when he gets on the apron, the original Undertaker suplexes him back into the ring, and Ted DiBiase's Undertaker sits up, which I found quite interesting. Yeah, you know, they never really make it clear if he's a guy who has demonic powers, if he is also a zombie, if he's just a guy wearing makeup that DiBiase hoped would fool everyone. We never really find out if this guy has any of the mystical abilities of the real authentic yeah, I think it's Undertaker. just a curse that runs in their family because many, many years later, Kane would suffer the same fate having an imposter just show up for a little while. <laughs> That's true. They go to the yeah. outside for a bit of brawling uh, before the Ted DiBiase's Undertaker hits a sort of stunner-like maneuver over the ropes. The crowd are very, very flat as... Ted DiBiase's Undertaker has his old-school attempt blocked, and he's press-slammed up and sits up. The original Undertaker with old-school properly, uh, but then he botches a hot shot, goes into some throat thrusts, and Vince McMahon, covering for the crowd, says that they're in awe and they don't know what to think. 
yeah, he they're so quiet that he has to mention it on commentary, which is not a good not sign. The original Undertaker misses an elbow, misses a clothesline, and ends up going over the top rope. And Vince McMahon says that you can hear the silence. Yes, yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> we get um, strikes from the Undertaker, a choke slam, and kneels down for a pin. But there's a sit up, and then we get a tombstone and a sit up from the original Undertaker, um, who goes for a second but it's reversed and the original undertaker hits a tombstone pile driver followed by a second followed by a third for the one, two, three and Ted DiBiase legs it down the aisle past Druids coming back to take the faker away forever. Yeah. I like the way that DiBiase just ran like hell the second (laughs) the match was done. Um, we get the Undertaker put into a casket, and then the super sleuths um, that we talked about earlier decide that their case is closed when they find a closed briefcase backstage to end the show on a very, very flat note. Yeah, the the whole main event was just terrible. The crowd was dead. This angle could have been something, I guess, but by the time we got here, it just it was clear the writing was on the wall that it wasn't going to be very good and it's just like let's just go out there and get this done and then we can have the under the proper undertaker back and we'll get him some real opponents and brian lee is he's off until disciples of the apocalypse many years (laughs) Uh, later i i agree with all of that except the undertaker getting some real opponents he gets some duds in the next year or two that's yeah well he goes back to yoko yeah i suppose so yeah between that though i think his next decent opponent is probably not until mankind arrives that's yeah, you're probably yeah, right. Um, I, I agree with you. A flat main event, a flat way to end the show, and just basically put it out of its misery now. SummerSlam overall, what were your thoughts? Did you enjoy the show? Was it a tough watch? It was tougher than I expected, to be honest. It was fun going through. I certainly have a lot more affinity in my heart for the WWF at this era. Cause I was watching that. I was not watching WCW. Occasionally my dad and I would check out clash of the champions cause they were just on free television uh, as opposed to a pay-per-view. Uh, so I just didn't know a lot of WCW. So I was very familiar with these characters and um, certainly Owen Hart's one of my favorites uh, of all time. We were going to uh, name our second child Owen until we had a daughter. <laughs> so then we, we <laughs> changed it up. Um, but we just, you know, I, I thought parts of the show were great. I thought Alundra Blaze and um, oh, now I'm going to blame it, but uh, Bull Nakano. I kept wanting to say Boss Nass from uh, <laughs> Phantom Menace. <laughs> um, I thought their match was great. Uh, I thought that the cage match was really good, and the opener was surprisingly good, despite having IRS in it and a bad finish. Uh, but overall, I, I honestly found the show to be kind of a slog, especially because when you get to the main event everything moves in half speed and the crowd is dead. Uh, so I, I found it a real mixed bag. I, I would say this was kind of a thumbs in the middle show uh, for yeah, me. What about you? I, I probably enjoyed it a little bit more than you, but yeah, I think you're probably pretty fair in your assessment there. There was, um, there was good and bad, but I think there was probably more good than I remember. And the bad was worse than I remember it being. So, you know, a bit of an up and down one for me. If you you know what would have really helped, this is a small thing, but take out Mabel and have Jeff Jarrett work with like one two three kid or one of your actual real workers on the roster at this point. That would have really helped the show, I think, to have like a high work rate match. Uh, 
That would have gone a long sneaking way. Sneaking suspicion, and I don't know if this is just my memory blanking it on purpose or not, but I have a feeling on the Coliseum home video that match was removed. Because I interesting. I wouldn't. This is. I wouldn't blame like, They they had a tendency to do that. I remember the year before there was a six man tag, which I think was Bam Bam and the Head Shrinkers against Jeff Jarrett, not Jeff Jarrett, um, somebody in the Smoking Guns, and that one was was not on the Coliseum video either. Because I remember coming back and watching them on the network and thinking, I've never seen this before. So I have a feeling that wasn't on. It didn't make the cut. Oh, it'd be understandable. Now, with both shows in the bag, what we normally do here is go and do our five-point ranking system to see if we can pick ourselves a winner. Are you ready to do this? Uh, okay, yeah, so let's do it. first category we always look at is production value. Who did you feel had the higher production value quality on the night? Oh, that's going to be WWF hand, uh, by a country yeah, mile. WCW certainly not helped by not being able to start the show on tape. Um, but yeah, I agree. WWF, they just... A lot of the times, this is a foregone conclusion unless WCW does something different. But yeah, WWF certainly for me as well. Um, characters, who do you feel made the best use of the characters they had available on the night? Ooh, that's that's a closer choice for me. I'm going to give an edge to WWF. I like the developments in Diesel Sean, certainly the Hart family drama. Um, I think those two things... The Undertaker, the match was lame, but I guess he did vanquish his opponent pretty easily and, and come back strong after, you know, a few months away. So I'm going to go with... Yeah, w- it was very close. I actually had a tie for this one. I think WCW, the clash, it's a bit more understandable. They didn't get everyone on, but not having Sting wrestle hurt it. But then on the WWF side of things, not having the one, two, three kid or Shawn Michaels wrestle hurt that as well. So, you know, they both got most of their characters on, but could have done a little bit more had they booked it a little bit wiser. Yeah, and it's interesting watching Clash, how many of those guys are gone just a year later when Nitro debuts. Paul Roma's gone. Um, oh, no, I see. I said that. No, and I'm not going to remember them all off the top of my head. But there was I remember just a lot of people on that. Oh, Dustin's gone. Blacktop Bully's gone. Dusty is certainly done in ring. He's just doing commentary. So it's, you know, the, a lot of those characters on the Clash show, Steamboat's gone. Austin's yeah, gone. Yeah. Okay, now I'm remembering more. Uh, a lot of those a lot of those characters are just approaching the end of their stories in that yeah, promotion. Absolutely. And speaking of stories, next uh, category up is storylines. Who do you think had the better storylines on the night? I'm going to go with WWF again because of the heart fan. I just think that's one of the best stories of the nineties is Brett and Owen. Um, I would have probably given it to clash of the champions had flair capitalized on that knee and locked into figure four and won that, ch- uh, you know, won the title in that match. I think then they would have told a very good story throughout the entire show that had a logical conclusion. But since Hogan came in with that kind of, it's not going to work for me, brother bullshit. uh, I'm going to have to take it away from them and give it again. I'm right there with you on that one, because I was thinking the exact same thing because I, I like, I, I guess if you take Brett Nowen as the main story of SummerSlam and Hulk and Flair as the main story of the clash, one's far, far superior. But then if you look at, I would say the next two big pieces of storytelling that I thought from the two shows would be The Undertaker vs. Undertaker and The Road Situation. And The Road Situation killed The Undertaker vs. Undertaker stuff. But the main event, yeah, the, the Hart Family Saga, it, it took a... It, 
had a conclusive ending to the pay-per-view while still advancing the storyline and not killing either character, whereas Hulk and Flair killed one of the hottest storylines WCW had ever had at that point, pretty much dead in the water. Absolutely, yeah. And then, unfortunately, they're going to live forward continuing that storyline for, like, another yeah, couple months. Which is awful. Now, crowd uh, heat on the night. Who do you think had the hotter crowd? There's a huge disparity mm-hmm. in crowd size. Um, but I'm actually going to give it to the Cedar Rapids folks in the Five Seasons Center for Clash of the Champions. I thought they were hot the whole way through, whereas the United Center were hot for ma- some matches, but they definitely checked out in Jarrett and Mabel, and then again in the in the main event, you know. Uh, so I'm going to have to give yeah, it to Clash. <laughs> volume per person per match certainly goes to WCW. I, I agree with you on that. I think the one that, that's telling for me is Regal and Anoki. That's a match with not a huge storyline and not too, you know, big names on TV at that point. And the, cra- the crowd got into that. So, yeah, I can certainly see that. And I, I agree. WCW probably did edge it, though it was close. Yeah. And for the first event in the United Center, the crowd did have some big, you know, moments where they were hot, particularly during Razor and Diesel and Brett Nolan. That gives us our uh, last category we come to now is match quality. Who do you think had the better quality matches on the night? I would say on average, I would give that to Clash. Uh, because the opener, you know, I don't love any of the guys involved, but that match was fine, the, the tag opener. Um, Anoki versus Regal was something that was different and surprising, and I liked it a lot. Um the Rhodes family match is probably the weak point from an in-ring perspective. The Austin uh, Steamboat match was great. Was, was I would say, better than the cage match on the whole. Uh, and then the main event between Flair and Hogan, I didn't like the ending, but I... And it is, you know, Hulk Hogan, who's kind of a limited worker, but I thought, actually, Flair is just... If there's one thing you should put on Flair's tombstone, it's that he's the master <laughs> of carrying Hulk Hogan to good matches. And I thought that was another one. I thought it was actually a pretty good match. Uh, so if we're averaging about, I'm going to actually say clash of the champions had a slightly higher. Fair enough. Match quality. Um, I probably, there's one match I disagreed with you on and I didn't enjoy flair and Hulk. And that swung me in the other direction because I considered it to be the clash had an awesome match in steamboat in Austin and a match. I enjoyed way more than I expected in Regal and Anoki, but the other three matches, I didn't really enjoy the nasty boys against the right opponent could be good, but pretty wonderful are certainly not the right opponent. And Bunkhouse Buck is someone I just never understood how he got on television. <laughs> I could not agree more. I do not get Bunkhouse so Buck So for me, I, I went the other way because on SummerSlam, whilst Jeff Jarrett and Mabel was awful and The Undertaker versus Undertaker was awful, every other match was... Oh, and Tatanka Lex Luger was pretty bad as well, but I think it's more half-half on SummerSlam because I enjoyed the first three matches and then the cage match. So I, I think, what's that, four out of seven, I want to say, four out of six maybe, um, with three matches I didn't really enjoy. So it, it's close, but I went the other way with the WWF. Yeah, that's fair. I, you know, I chose Clash, but I could easily accept arguments for either well, one. In this that case. gives us a total uh, across the board of three wins for WCW, one win for a tie, and six wins for the WWF, so SummerSlam edging it out in August of 94, taking the victory. Do you think that's a, a fair conclusion? I do. I think that there you cannot underestimate the importance of production value 
Uh, and I know that's just one of the categories, but I think that the production value of the WWF is what sells it so well to the audience, to the performers that want to come and work there. Um, and just when you compare these two shows, even though, like I said, the, the best match was the Austin Steamboat match. Unfortunately, it's just the truth. And even for, you know, the smarkiest smarks amongst us, a good work rate just isn't always going to cut it against just excellent, excellent production. As long as that production gives you enough good wrestling in there, you know, to kind of make up for the Mabels <laughs> of the world. So, yeah, I would say SummerSlam winning makes perfect sense because it's the production is just insane compared to some small arena in Iowa with Hulk Hogan. Yeah, and around, the streets you know? of Iowa, don't forget. That was a long walk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, man. That's so right. that that that'll do it for for this one that was certainly an enjoyable trip down memory lane for me so thank you very much for coming in jumping on the show before we check out do you want to tell everybody where they can find you and what 20 years of nitro is up to at the moment yeah so 20 years of nitro is my podcast where we review uh episodes of monday nitro chronologically uh when we started we had a gimmick where we were uh reviewing them on the 20th anniversary of when they aired uh, we sort of ended up just real life made that schedule impossible. So now they're released just sort of whenever we're able to get together. Um, so they are slow, but we, we really try to take a humorous and historical perspective. I do a lot of research. I read, you know, a lot of books, the observer, I, I try to put everything in context. Um, we are right in the thick of the debut of the NWO. So they've just formed as a group and we're heading towards their second pay-per-view now. Uh, or their first pay-per-view since they've actually been formed, which is Hogwild 96. Um, you can find that on any place you listen to podcasts. Whatever you're listening to this show on, you can certainly find our show there. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter, at 20 Years of Nitro. Um, we do have a Facebook group, but I do not use Facebook, so that's all my partner running that, so I don't know how frequently that's updated. Um, but it is on Facebook at 20 Years of Nitro. And, uh, yeah, so check us out. Uh, if you like this show, I think you're going to like our show as well because we're covering a lot of the same stuff. But, we, you know, I like the contrast here because you take the WWF into account, whereas we'll sort of talk about what happened on Raw, um, but really in kind of a quick recap. We really are focusing you saved on yourself a ton of time watching shows. I'm, <laughs> I'm about, <laughs> what, 55 episodes in and realize the longer Raw and Nitro is in the pay-per-views, this was possibly a poor life choice. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i, I think you, both of us are going to be poorly affected when oh, nitro goes to three hours i mean that's i don't know how we're going to get through those we're going to have episodes once every yeah, six it's, months it's, or something. it gets that way from time to time but no definitely go <laughs> and check out 20 years of nitro um if you have enjoyed this show or if you enjoy what we do normally i'm probably about 10 episodes into the run listening so i've been really enjoying it and it goes really quickly it's it's a bit like oh, i find a lot of the episodes similar to not necessarily in content but in with my solo shows where they're a half an hour in bite-sized chunk it doesn't take a ton of investment to get through it because it breezes through pretty quickly uh, yeah i will say uh we get a lot better as we go on those first 10 i can't even go back and listen to my hate listening from now our audio quality gets a lot better uh but also if you're looking at the newer episodes they are they're quite they're much longer in length we we uh, we had a Bash the Beach episode that was like four and a half hours long. So um, 
I, I hope that it is breezy and easy to listen to, but we do <laughs> we do sometimes put out pretty long. Oh, shows I'll listen to podcasts every day, so I'll be looking forward to that. It gives gives me gives me more <laughs> to get into, but no, it's it's really enjoyable. So I suggest everybody go and listen. And as I say every week on this as well, leave a five star review for both shows. That would be very very helpful on iTunes. Always trying to get more listeners out and. Uh, yeah, so next up for this podcast, I have got the Road to WrestleMania 12 coming up, so there'll be some more stuff there. Um, Duncan and I will catch up again at some point to talk TNA and WWF's Monday Night War in 2010, and then I'll be back to the 80s at some point as well, so we're going to just keep jumping all across the different areas of wrestling in the next few weeks. Well, thank you so much uh, for having me on your show. I... I've listened to a few episodes. I'm going to go back to the back catalog. So when I get into a podcast, I'm a completionist. I like to start back in the beginning. So I'm going to have to try to find my way to catch back yeah, up. To war, right now. Um, the first few episodes of the show, I had no idea what I'm doing, which is different to me having a slight idea of what I'm doing now. <laughs> Yeah, you you sound like me. Whenever I recommend the pod our podcast to somebody, I'm like, don't start at the beginning because it's <laughs> terrible. Like you've got to you've got to pick a time like sometime in the last five months. I did my first episode. There. I recorded it on my phone, so that should tell you how bad it is. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, I'm I'm not yeah. a tech guy. <laughs> But no, that, that would be awesome. So thank you very much for coming on. It's been very enjoyable um, catching up and chewing up some old WWF and WCW with you. Thanks again. I really right. appreciate Thanks it. Thanks a lot, guys. Fun.